Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, for your WWE Crown Jewel 2022 Ultimate Preview. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened in the world of WWE this week across SmackDown, Raw, and beyond as WWE moves into its penultimate premium live event of 2022 and that is indeed crown jewel taking place this saturday afternoon the silver king adam silverstein vintage chris vanini we are here to break down every single match on that show we're offering predictions uh, giving our thoughts on how the storylines will progress going forward and of course we will also be talking about everything across smackdown and raw that is not specifically about crown jewel uh going into this weekend so all of that is still to come here on the getting over wrestling podcast allow me to remind you now that this show is beginning that this podcast so please folks stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me go back to being marks for the silver king for vintage head on over to apple Podcasts and spotify drop those five star ratings on apple take a couple moments leave a written review as well let everyone know how much you love this show those ratings those reviews super important as i always mention and we have not had the opportunity to read uh five star reviews on this show the last couple of weeks you guys were at a torrid pace uh for quite a while where we were doing one sometimes multiple per episode but the reviews have dried up so please folks take a couple moments we're in like year three of this podcast. I know how many of you listen. I know how many have left ratings and reviews. The numbers are nowhere close to each other. Take a few moments, drop the five-star rating, read a written, uh, leave a written review, and we will read it right here on this show. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. It's great to follow us every week because we do episode drops. We talk about all the major shows live while they're happening. We, we tweet out news and, and videos and fun stuff as well. But this week, a premium live event or pay-per-view week, it's even better. You get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls and join us live for our Twitter Spaces pre-show ahead of Crown Jewel this coming Saturday afternoon. I don't have a specific time yet. It'll either be 11 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. Eastern. We will release that on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast. Shortly before that show begins, you'll be able to set a reminder and join us. Uh, we do we go over everything at the last minute, basically all the matches, last minute picks, previews, predictions, all that types of stuff. And we also open the mics and let you guys uh, communicate as well. You get to share your thoughts, your comments, your questions. And it's a really, really fun time. So follow us on Twitter for all of that at Getting Overcast. With that, let me welcome vintage Chris Vanini to the show. Chris, we always say it here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We have a jam-packed show. We have so much for you to get to. I am not exaggerating here because what we have is not only a WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview, not only are we covering everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week, the Silver King got to sit down a couple weeks ago with Austin Theory, and this is the first time that interview is being released here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So that is coming today as well. Point is, Chris, it's a very busy week of WWE, but for you and I, it is also a very busy week in the world of college football, game of the century type stuff, Georgia versus Tennessee, likely number one versus number two, maybe number three. We'll see what happens in the college football playoff rankings. Alabama, LSU, Kansas State, Texas. There's another one I'm not thinking about. Notre Dame, Clemson. we got some big games this weekend, uh, along with, of course, WWE Crown Jewel. So we're going to be busy. 
Yeah. WWE, please stop scheduling your pay-per-views for Saturday night during the fall. It sucks. sucks. I, it, 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 it's terrible. I, I don't, I don't, I'm curious what the numbers are going up against a bunch of college games versus going up against one Sunday night football game. I don't know. I'm sure they've done the numbers on it. They want people in town for the weekend and stuff like that. But uh, I'm more yeah, understanding, it's, it's Chris, for us. I, if, if for the afternoon shows, if they're doing international, I, I am understanding of them doing it Saturday afternoon as opposed to Sunday afternoon. Sure. But for the evening shows, it must be Sunday night. It makes no sense to do it Saturday night. Just during the fall. That's all. During the fall. Yeah. When people are going out, like it's it's crazy. It's just it's yeah, frustrating so. for both of us. And yeah, look, maybe we're the only ones with this complaint. I don't think we are. <laughs> uh, but it, it affects you and I specifically uh, for a few months a year. Uh, before we get into the main event, the interview, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. One quick note here. It came out over the weekend that WWE is actually going to be lending Shinsuke Nakamura to Pro Wrestling Noah in Japan for a dream match on New Year's Day 2023 against the great Muda. And this is just an incredible story. It's not that WWE hasn't done this before. They did allow uh, Kenta Hideo Itami in WWE at the time. He was in NXT. They allowed him to go over there, wrestle a match in Japan as well. This is obviously a few years ago. But Vince McMahon, apparently, according to all reports, turned down Noah twice when they asked for Nakamura. Once Vince left and Paul Levesque got into the chair, they contacted WWE again. And Triple H was like, yeah, sure, of course. Why wouldn't we, right? So we're going to get Nakamura against the great Muda. New Year's Day, that on its own is going to be awesome. And then when you think about this, this is the great Muda's retirement run that he's going on right now. I think it would make a lot of sense if he came over to WWE and did something. Now, what is that going to be? Given it's the retirement run, I think the most likely scenario would be him getting inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame class of 2023. That's my guess. Um, he does have a scheduled final match that is one week before the Royal Rumble. If he saw it as a situation where that could be his final singles match, and then he made a guest Royal Rumble appearance, that would be awesome. I don't exactly know what's going to happen on the other end. There may be no reciprocation. It could just be WWE saying, hey, the great Muda, legend, Shinsuke, go over there for a dream match. I think it's first time ever. Go wrestle him. That's cool. Um, but Chris, I think for anyone who knew the great Muda, from at least WCW, if not everything that he did, of course, in Japan, and no Shinsuke Nakamura and what he means to Japanese professional wrestling. But it was very cool for Triple H to do this. And personally, I'm very excited for the match. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, Triple H is always a guy who's had a deep respect for the history of the business and, and has reacted as such. I, I'm frankly just not surprised that he would agree to do something like this. I think it's good for everything. Um, and that'll be fun. As for Muda coming over, I don't know. I know he was in AEW not that long ago, yeah, and I think he had a one-off. He, yeah. He's 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 going to be. I think Sting is going to be in his last match as like a six-man tag or something like that. So uh, I don't know if contractually what is or isn't allowed, but just in general, that's pretty cool, and it, it's nice to see WWE have some relationships like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I just wanted to get that out before we got into the show. And I also want to tell everyone what is ahead on the show. I did briefly mention it already, but I'm going to break it down for you. We're going to start with the main event, double main event, actually, two segments in one. We're then going to move to my sit-down interview with WWE superstar, Mr. Money in the Bank, Austin Theory. We will go into the good, the bad, and the ugly, talking about everything else that happened this week 
across SmackDown and Raw. And we will finish up with WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. So if you happen to be listening to the show you know, closer to the end of the week, perhaps Friday or Saturday, and you just want to get the Ultimate Preview, we have timestamps in our episode description. You can jump around to any portion of the show that you want to hear. Just do not forget, check the episode description, find the timestamp, and you can jump to the WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview if you so desire near the end of the week to listen to it right before uh, the show goes down. Chris, with all of that said, let's begin as I just promised, as we do every week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast by sliding into the main event. So we're going to start on SmackDown with the bloodline as we normally do in this spot. This was a little more special. It all began with Sami Zayn and Solo Sokoa against the Brawling Brutes. Sami said he wanted Jey Uso's help because they needed to start the show with a win for the Tribal Chief. Solo and Ridge Holland bumped meat for a moment. Jimmy distracted as Butch tried a cloverleaf on Sami. Jay saved Sammy from eating a moonsault by pulling him out of the ring. Zayn got mad at that because he said Jay basically helped him the wrong way. They started arguing, Solo stepped between them. Holland ran through Solo and Jay outside as Butch caught Sammy with a small package for the win. So they kept arguing, Sammy and Jay, after the bell. Solo again stepped between them before Jimmy got in Jay's face. And suddenly, Roman Reigns' music hit. So Reigns, he makes his whole entrance. He said, if Sammy and Jay want to act like kids, he'll treat them like kids. He didn't want to air dirty laundry in public, but he said, guys, you should just fight. Fans chanted for Sammy. He explained he likes Jay and no one else in the bloodline has a problem with him, but he would still apologize if he upset Jay. Sammy extended his hand. Paul Heyman pat him on the back for basically being the bigger man, it seemed. Jay told him, get your hand out of my face. And he basically said, I don't like you. And you're not blood, so you're never really going to be part of the bloodline. And even though no one in the bloodline likes Sammy, Jay is the only one who will actually say it. Sammy said he's trying to make peace because that's what the tribal chief wants. And Jay snapped back, I don't give a damn what the tribal chiefs say. That was not a good impression. Uh, Reigns had his back to them with his head down, but he slowly raised his head and turned around. It was a great camera shot. Fans chanted, you fucked up, which somehow didn't get bleeped like holy shit chants do in WWE. That one came through loud and clear. Sammy immediately played Peacemaker, telling Roman, Jay doesn't mean it. He hasn't been very oozy lately, which made Reigns crack a smile. And Jay laughed so hard, he started covering his face with both of his hands. Fans start chanting oozy. Roman asked if Jay wasn't feeling oozy, and Jay covered his face while he burst out laughing. Reigns said if Jade didn't find his inner Usi, Reigns would make Sammy not just an honorary Usi, he would take the honorary away and make him a full-blown Usi, and he would call him Sammy Uso. Sammy was beaming when Reigns said that, and fans chanted Sammy Uso. Then later backstage, Heyman prevented Jay from going into the locker room, saying it was best for him to deliver Jay's message to Roman, and that he always had his back. Heyman begged Reigns to watch tape of Logan Paul sparring. Rain said he won't hit a lucky punch. Heyman said he knows a doctor who knows a doctor. And Paul has steel pins in his fist. Then he pointed out Logan's third match. Um, it might be his third match, but Brock Lesnar won a title in his third match. Heyman could tell he was pissing off Reigns, so he left. Okay, first, Chris, the match was solid, good wrestling and booking. And the part with Reigns and Heyman that I just mentioned, it was fine to try to sell Logan as an actual threat. But we're not here to really talk about well, either of those things. Before, you, before that, though, I, I, I do. I, I want to comment on the Roman 
Haman thing okay, once real it. quick. Go and when it. Roman says he's had two matches, I burst out laughing. I thought that was really funny because I was okay. like, he's right. I agreed. I liked it. Well, it's it's he's saying it like he's only had two matches. This is ridiculous to think he can beat me. We're saying it as he's only had two matches. It's ridiculous that he's getting a title shot. Right. It so was just, yeah. Roman's just like complete like disgust with this even happening was very funny. Which is funny because it kind of plays into what the fans. Yeah. But anyway, we're not here really to talk about the match, which was good again. And we're not really here to talk about that, which was good, as you just mentioned. We only have two months left in this year, Chris. What we got Friday night on SmackDown immediately became a top contender for best segment of 2022. It was freaking phenomenal in the exact same way that funny Saturday Night Live skits become legendary, which is people breaking when they're not supposed to break. The setup with Jay and Sammy arguing, Reigns interrupting, Jay disrespecting the tribal chief, Reigns slow reaction, it was perfection. And then it just completely fell apart, but in the best possible way. Reigns went from looking like his head was going to explode to cracking a smile. Jay went from staring daggers at Sammy to putting his head in both his hands to hide his smile and basically prevent his body from shaking with laughter. There was one point where Jay was laughing so hard he started crying. You could even see Roman like recognize what was happening. And he went from being 100% serious to prodding Jay and making him face the camera so he could break more. And that (laughs) is exactly what family does. Like if you're there and like, I I can't even think of a situation um, but like your family member, your brother or, or your sister, or whatever is laughing or breaking or something's happening and getting embarrassed. You don't turn them away from the embarrassment. You pull them into it. And that's exactly what Roman did here. So it, that was a really cool, like piece of reality injected into a wrestling segment that was already breaking. I just, I loved that familial moment kind of between them. And then between the Usi references, Reigns threat, Zane's glowing reaction to the possibility of becoming a full blown Usi. What more could you want? It was exceptional. This is one of those segments that people will still be watching decades from now. I, yes. 1.7 million views on YouTube. The Twitter view views are way, I think you told me it might've been something like 12 the, million. The total social media interaction in 24 hours was 12 million. Yeah, it was just insane. I, I, I less than twenty four hours. I'm sorry. I cut out. I cut out a, a, a gif, a gif of uh, Sammy's smile on one of those. I tweeted it as a Halloween joke last night, and I got a Bloomberg reporter replying that that uh, the Halloween was very oozy. Like that thing just broke through in a big way, which is cool. But I gotta say, do you think they knew he was going to say oozy? I'd be, 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 because it'd be like it almost like it's happened several times where Sammy's gotten them very close to breaking. And we like to think maybe that under the Triple H era, there is a little more freedom in what you're allowed to say and kind of just go off a little bit. Maybe Roman reacted and leaned into the Usi stuff even more as it went on. I don't know, but just with they seem to not know that word was coming with the way they reacted, or maybe they didn't. It was just still too funny. So I think but, it was. But that was. I'm curious what you think. So because stuff is less scripted than it's ever been before, I don't think they didn't know it was coming. I don't think they knew the context or the way in which he would say it. Because if you watch the video back, like a Zapruder film or something, you watch it back a few times. You'll notice that like Jay puts his face in his hands before Sammy says it like, Mm. 
a good like I think 10 seconds earlier and Jimmy in the background has his hand over his mouth and he's kind of like about to lean on the ropes like you can see he's trying to like get away from the situation and Reigns you can kind of see like he sees it coming but I don't think they knew how it would be delivered and what the crowd reaction would be <laughs> and those two things plus Reigns seeing Jay's reaction Jay seeing Reigns reaction Jimmy in the background I think it was just a moment and it's impossible to plan that type of moment. And it's also impossible to replicate that type of moment. Yeah. Sammy's made them break before. All of them. Yeah. Made Reigns that's break. On, that's all joining. What, were, they were they just preparing that they know he's going to say something and they got to like, they got to like be ready for him to try to break him or something. I don't know. I think so. Dude, it was just, this was just exceptional though. Like it's, it was a great segment beyond the breaking. Like even if that didn't yeah. happen or, or if only Jay broke for like, five seconds and everyone else just carried on. It still would have been one of the segments and moments of the entire year. But with all of that, I don't know how we could hold it out of that conversation. Like, I mean, yes, we have a few really great MJF promos, the MJF William Regal thing we got recently. That's definitely up there. There's numerous WWE moments, Bray Wyatt's return, Cody Rhodes and Hell in a Cell, Cody Rhodes return. Uh, there's so many great moments in wrestling this year, but this is absolutely going to be a finalist for moment of the year. Maybe we even do a new award for segment of the year to kind of differentiate it from the moments like Cody and some of that stuff. But dude, like I, I've, how many times have you watched this? Honestly, I have watched it more than 10 times. I, I probably like five to seven times. I didn't see it live. Actually, my brother texted me and I, I had to, cause it was on FS one. It wasn't on Fox. Right. So it didn't show up on my DVR. So I had to wait to find it on social. And then I watched it several times on there. And like the, the production of the whole thing was great because, bef be because you get like Roman and Jay looking serious kind of at each other. And then the camera zooms in on Sammy as he kind of like cracks a smile and looks at them. And it happened a second time in the same promo. And it also happened a couple, a few weeks ago when he got the honorary shirt, like when they, they, they're zooming in on Sammy yep. to let him show the emotion out of his face several times. And Jay. He's so good at that. Sammy and, and, and Jay. Jay too. Yeah. yeah. But, but Sammy especially is the guy who's kind of like the focal point of a lot of this stuff is just delivering every single week with just tremendous delivery, tremendous facial acting and everything involved in it. And he didn't break obviously during the UC thing. I mean, like he smiled as part of the joke, but, but he's just, He's 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 you always want to you don't want to say like someone's doing the best work of their career, especially someone who's accomplished so much as him. he is but doing Sam, the best work of his career. But what Sammy is doing right now is the kind of stuff that will be remembered forever. I yep. mean, we got Usi chance on Raw the next day. Like you want to talk about promo of the year, segment of the year, whatever. This became something that is yeah. going to last. And, no, it's, it, and that yeah. it was just an incredible moment. It's legendary. He's on his you know, Mick Foley kind of comedy run working with the rock. It's like the equivalent yeah. of yeah. that, the modern day version of that. And it's just absolutely crushing to the point where you're right. It's breaking through. I had five, not exaggerating five people who all used to watch wrestling, but don't watch wrestling anymore. Text me between Friday and Saturday, including, and this person still watches wrestling, uh, but he doesn't get to watch it as much during the NFL season. Handsome Nick Costos who you all know, of course, from my old podcast, he texts me. I don't think he's going to care that I read it. I guess I need to be watching the Sami Zayn stuff. Yeah, yeah, you do, Nick. And everyone else does does too, because it's really freaking incredible. So um, 
it's just great. And look, there's a couple details I wanted to single out to explain why this was so great. First was Reigns addressing the guys initially, Chris, with his back to them. I just thought that was such a great visual. Then there's Jay, who, by the way, is actually sort of right about like the whole family blood thing, but he's so blinded by rage and what Reigns has done to him mentally that he's also ignoring what everyone else is seeing, which is all the times that Sammy has actually sacrificed himself for the bloodline and Jay specifically. He's also jumped in front of Roman Reigns, which no one else in the bloodline has the guts to do, to save Sammy from getting the shit kicked out of him, ejected, excommunicated, whatever you want to call it, by Roman. He's done it like three times now, including in this very segment on Friday, and Jay just kind of ignored it. I really thought Sammy should have mentioned that in his promo. But I just think we've gotten to a point where, like, Chris, this is the storyline of the year, right? Like, I know we have Cody and his return to WWE and the pectoral. There's been some really good stuff in AEW. You can possibly say the MJF thing and his return, even though I think there's a lot of issues with that. But this has to be the storyline of the year when it comes to the end of of the year. And Sami Zayn, despite not necessarily getting it done in the ring, not that he's been a bad wrestler, but he's not some exemplary wrestler. I think he should actually be in wrestler of the year conversations, at least as a candidate, a top 10 or 15 guy, because the acting and the sports entertainment side of it, he is doing better than anyone else in the entire industry. If we had an award, like best supporting actor, it would be Jey Uso. And there wouldn't be an argument about that. I've said for two years now, and you just said it again, that Sami Zayn is doing the best work of his entire career. This further cements it. Guess what? Roman Reigns is also doing the best work of his entire career. And guess what? Jey Uso is also doing the best work of his entire career. This was great, emotional. I I just, I loved it. Yeah, it's, um, it, and the thing is, we haven't even gotten to the climax of the story. We are (laughs) going to, we we are going to get at some point, the bloodline turning on Sammy and people are going to go berserk. And the bloodline and Roman are going to have so much heat when that happens. And, and, and as it should, like Sammy's doing this type of oozy stuff continues to kind of make him a face in front of the fans. And then eventually when that breakup happens, it's going to be a huge moment. So like he's doing incredible stuff and we're not even at the best stuff yet. So I, I, that'll, that'll be something. That's the crazy part. By the way, really quick, did you notice how much gray was in Roman's beard this week? Like, I'm not sure I, if he was dying it before or if it's just starting to come through or it's on purpose because the bloodline is stressing him out so much. And that would be incredible if he's doing it on purpose. But wasn't it like def- definitely noticeable? It made him look five years older and a little bit wiser, too. I wrote this exact same. I, didn't, I wrote this down. I wrote it down. I was going to bring it up later. Roman, it, it might have been a little bit grayer, but it was longer. He'd grown it out a little bit, like when he first came back. When he first back came in back. the Thunderdome, it was a bit longer. And you're right; I wrote down he looks like the dad of the group now. He looks yeah. like he's older, wiser, more in charge, and I love it. He's got the best. He's got he's got one of the best beards, honestly, in the world right now, and he has been ever since in this character. It's always sublime, and there's a little bit of gray in there, yeah. But he's grown it out a little bit, and I noticed that too. 
Yeah, I, I think so, the someone, has, someone who has a beard and, and continues the upkeep. Uh, yeah, I noticed that. I think the gray is brand new. I mean, I'm sure it's always been there. My guess is he was dying it and then hasn't dyed it since like a week before he went away because he was gone for a week or two weeks or however long. I just don't think he's dyed it recently. So, um, but if you go back and look at some of those when he first returned, like in the Thunderdome, it's jet black and it's still been black as of, you know, the last couple of months, but uh, weeks even like a month ago. Um but I definitely noticed it this week. Like it was gray. He has gray on the sides of his hair also. It just, it's a distinguished, it's like a different look. And to think that Roman Reigns has gone through like a, this three-year period and gone from like with the, the new teeth, the veneers, right? And, and the dark mm-hmm. beard and the different, the different shavings and all that type of stuff. And the new tattoo uh, to like this older, grayer, wiser, tired of all the kids bullshit version of Roman Reigns Old in this period Roman. of time. It's just really kind of funny. He's um, so freaking, he's so freaking good looking, man. You look back at the goatee era that he had for so long and it's like, man, why did he do the goatee? He the looks beard so, is so bad cool. with that. Goatee. He looks so, he's like pale and, and in the goatee's a bad look. Like they just, they nailed it with this look that he's had for more than two years now. And I can't believe they didn't figure it out before. I guess there's some segment of our audience where this would apply. She's got me saying, hey. So for anyone who for whom that applies, there you go. Uh, let's move to the second part of this main event, which is Bray Wyatt, who on SmackDown was backstage planning to address his demons. A TV flickered with images we've seen before. He made his full ring entrance and he spoke as himself again in the dark with the blue light. He said the welcome back chance made him feel invulnerable and wanting to do something wild. He wanted fans to get used to Bray Wyatt, the real man, the best version of him. He promised to do spectacular things, noting... He usually doesn't have control and his emotions can get the best of him. Wyatt said he liked that he's not afraid to do horrible things and knows he'll do horrible things eventually, once again, when all of a sudden the blue light shut off and he got interrupted. But unlike last time where he cut off, he just kept talking this time, which I thought was strange. So the video comes on the screen. We got a better shot of the character from last week, removing the white mask to reveal a human looking mask while wearing a crocodile hunter style top hat. This was a real like this is a real dated reference. I don't know that you guys are going to get it, but if you remember Salute Your Shorts on Nickelodeon back in the day, (laughs) uh, the guy looked like Zeke the Plumber. And he said, quote, who am I? I'm just the ghost of the man who sold the world, of course. This is a reference to a David Bowie song about an internal struggle. He also said, quote, you are a fool. You killed the world. You sent him away. I believe him is the fiend. And that's the reason why you're just a shell of what you once were. And I say to revel in what you are. For he said, you're a liar. You claim you don't wear a mask, but we both know that's not true, don't we? I can save you. You will never be able to hide from me, your Uncle Howdy. And there was also a QR code during the segment that led to a picture of Wyatt with the eyes crossed out in red X's, just like he used to do when he would beat people in the Firefly Funhouse and the word liar written on the graphic 29 times. The source code on the page said, I see you, written a bunch of times, and the URL tag matched a Nirvana cover of a David Bowie song, the same David Bowie song that I just mentioned on YouTube. So this was basically the last two weeks of Bray Wyatt stuff coming together. In terms of who Uncle Howdy is or what he's about, you know, I don't know. I think it could possibly be some references to Luke Harper, Brody Lee. It sure sounded like it was Bo Dallas, Bray's brother, cutting the promo under the mask. 
I do agree, Chris, with what you said last week, um, which is that the burn on this is a bit too slow and maybe even a bit too complicated. What we got here, it was definitely intriguing. But my biggest issue with what WWE is doing with Bray Wyatt since he actually returned to TV is they're shoving him into the final five minutes of the show. They're giving him two minutes to speak. They're never letting him react to the videos that we see. They're not allowing the audio of the videos to be a bit clearer and easier to understand. I had to go back and watch it three times to get all the words that the guy was saying. And also the entirety of the thing is not substantive at this point. Like I want more meat to be able to chew on. Wyatt's back, people want to see him. I know it's a unique gimmick, but he needs to be in front of people for longer or else this is just gonna lose momentum. I think that's already happening a little bit. I am not suggesting it's bad. I am not suggesting it's over or that he's ruined or that it's not working. Not saying any of those things. I just feel like it could be getting executed a lot better than it is. Yeah, I I don't care. I, don't, I do not care what's going on. Okay, there's a guy named Milko Howdy. Got it. Like, there's just, there's not much there. There's not much to react to. It's still just... It's still just spooky mystery, you know, phrases that are, I don't know. I just watched it and I was like, I don't care anymore. Like, I'm not, I'm not done on it. I'm not saying it's dead. I'm I'm not saying they can't be fixed or get interesting. It's just not interesting right now. It's just not to me. Other people I'm sure like it. Let me, let me pull up the YouTube here to, to figure out exactly how many viewers this one had. I just, I didn't. It did nothing for me. I was like, all right, there's a guy named Uncle Howdy. I don't know who the hell Uncle Howdy is or why he matters or whatever, but sure. All right. That's about it. It uh, 823,000 views on this Bray Wyatt video. So not they're, they're going down. Yeah, I just, you know, again, it's I'm still entertained by it. When it pops up on my screen, it's captivating. It still has my attention. I'm interested but it is, you're right, to some small degree starting to lose me a little bit because they're just not giving us enough. And they're going to have Bray Wyatt. They already announced it. He's going to be at Crown Jewel. Okay. And what's going to happen there, right? Like, I'm not saying he needs to immediately get in a match or a feud. I'm okay with long-term storytelling. I know there's people out there, oh, you guys criticize them not doing long-term storytelling. But then when they do, you criticize it for being too long. That That's not really the criticism. It's just start developing stuff, like inform us who this is, have Bray Wyatt explain, you know, not they're making it as if all of these individual elements are happening in a vacuum where Bray Wyatt's talking and then that goes away and this stuff appears on screen. I want Bray Wyatt to explain to me, the viewer, what we're seeing on screen. I want him to address this weird shit that keeps interrupting him and he's not. So until he yeah. does that, it's just two storylines operating separately in vacuums that aren't related to each other. Like we know that the, the guy, Uncle Howdy and the masked person, if they're the same person, two different people, we know they're talking about Bray, but Bray's just ignoring that these people keep interrupting all his shit. And it's just like, at some point you need to address it. So like, th- th- yeah, real that's quick, my just think, of, think about when Kane debuted and you had Basically, all in once, Paul Bearer say the Undertaker uh, had a brother and he died in a fire and the family died. Like, boom, right. you got the story, right? And we front. learned we learned so much more about Kane over the decade that followed. 
But initially, yeah. we had the answers. We had some answers. Yes, they, they kind of told you what it was, and Kane's coming. You're like, oh, this, this something bad happened. Is Kane going to come? And then, by God, it's that's got to be Kane. So that's just an example of like a spooky thing that you're trying to allude to something, but we just there's no meat on this yet. Now we got an Uncle Howdy. I don't know who Uncle Howdy is yet. We'll find out. But just at this point, I don't care. Yeah, and I think that's also fair. Like, this is kind of going, it is on a on a downward trajectory, and it's not necessarily their fault completely, but nothing is going to be cooler that happens than the white rabbit, um, you know, the, the red lights and doing it at the live shows and people wondering what that is, and then it happening during TV tapings, and then there being QR codes. Like, that was the height. Mm-hmm. And now everything, and his first entrance um, at Extreme Rules, that was awesome too. But everything since, you're you're naturally going to go down. The problem is, instead of naturally just angling downward, it's not, I don't want to say it's falling off a cliff, but the angle of downward trajectory is a lot greater than it should have been. Instead of being like a five degree angle, it's like a 35 degree angle, if that, if that sure. makes sense what I'm trying to say. Like, it's, it's, they're not holding the attention and the interest the way they should because they're continuing to tell something very long and slow that already took a long time for us to just get to this point. They got to figure it out. And I think it's a fair criticism. I, I, we're not saying it's bad. We're not saying it's dead. We're just saying, all right, we, we got you. You've laid the base foundation now. Go ahead and deliver. And that's, Chris, what I hope they do in short order. Now, we have a lot of show left here. As I mentioned, we still have the good, the bad, and the ugly breaking down everything across SmackDown and Raw this week, as well as our WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. Both of those are still to come. But first, let's take a bit of a reprieve. I got the opportunity to sit down with WWE superstar, former United States champion, and the current Mr. Money in the Bank, Austin Theory. We had a great conversation about what it means to him that WWE believed enough in him to give him the Money in the Bank briefcase in the first place, his time on the main roster, his return to NXT working in the way with Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae and everything in between. So without further ado, the Silver King sits down with Austin Theory. Thrilled to welcome Austin Theory to the show for the very first time. You can catch him on WWE Raw every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on USA Network. And as Mr. Money in the Bank, I guess, also NXT on Tuesdays, 8 p.m. on USA Network and SmackDown Fridays, 8 p.m. on Fox. Speaking of Money in the Bank, uh, getting that briefcase, obviously a huge vote of confidence for WWE to give one of their superstars. What was the message that was sent to you when you were told you were going to wind up with the briefcase, really just shy of your 25th birthday? So how the WWE works, it's such a, a, a wild place. Uh, the day I found out I was winning the money in the bank was literally uh, right when I was told, hey, you're in this match. And I was like, <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, so not really a message or a uh, a direction, you know, just kind of here it is. And uh, I kind of realized uh, as I won it, I was like, man, I am the youngest Mr. Money in the Bank. And everybody started calling me that. So that was that was really cool. But uh, as far as a, uh, a layout or really a direction, man. There, real, there wasn't really one at all. Was there anything after the fact where you kind of came back and, all right, Austin, you know, we're all on board with you now. Like, this is obviously something super important to the company. Or is it kind of just they knew that you recognized that and understood the importance of what it was? I would say maybe that's the best option to go with is that uh, I kind of knew what I had because uh, I was kind of on a roll anyway. Mm-hmm. And the story of that night pretty much was 
you know, I'm the youngest United States champion. Uh, I lost that title to Bobby Lashley, uh, but I could have beat him. Um, but then I entered the money in the bank ladder match. And I think it was just a continuous, uh, um, session for that character to watch him, uh, really go on to the next thing, uh, with it being something important. So that's kind of what I take away from it. Now that was only a little more than three months ago and you've been, or had been, or, and still are a pretty significant focal point for the product. But in backstage, a lot has changed in the time since. How would you describe your comfort and confidence level given how things stand now with the regime change and everything that's going on? Yeah, I would say, honestly, man, uh, there's always change and there's always going to be change no matter what. Um, but for me, man, where I stand on it is I feel great. Um, when I got into the WWE, uh, it was all Triple H. Um, I was in Evolve. I was wrestling uh, in the at the time, Evolve was working with WWE, and Triple H uh, had his hand on that. And I got brought to NXT and started working with Triple H and NXT. And then um, everybody knows I moved up to Monday Night Raw. And then now Triple H is in charge of Monday Night Raw. But um, I think there's just – everybody has to take in that uh, there's a lot of new faces. There's a lot of new things going on. And we've kind of got to get to where we can establish, uh, okay, this is everything. This is everybody we have. Now let's start getting into the thick of it and let's get to the details. So it's just one of those things. I think it's just always about staying positive and, and uh, you know, not everything's always going to be flying straight up. You know, mm -hmm. there's going to be times where you're going to take those little dips, but uh, instead of going all the way down, it's how you carry those little dips, you know? And for me, uh, I try my hardest to stay relevant. Uh, I try my hardest to make that money in the bank contract mean everything that it actually does. Mm -hmm. And just on my own part, whether it's a promo, whether it's a match, uh, just making sure I do my absolute best that I could do. So as a superstar, as a performer, has your workday changed at all? What I mean is like when you get to the arena, have you noticed changes to the creative process, how you come up with your promos, putting matches together? Is there more freedom and flexibility? Is it pretty much the same? How, you know, can you kind of describe that for me? I would say that um, there's definitely more uh, freedom of creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's not so much uh, you receive something and this is exactly what you're saying or it's going to be like this um, or it's going to change a couple times. Uh, it's pretty set in stone. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. hey, this is what you're doing today. Uh, this is the idea. Uh, if you have any questions or anything that, you know, you would change, you know, your character better than anybody. And that's what we're told. Mm -hmm. So how would you say this? And, you know, obviously don't go out there and, and talk about something that has nothing to do with the show or nothing that's promoting but anything that's pushing the storyline or making it more exciting or that's really going to get people into this match and and really put us as performers on that next level. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important thing. And that's that's what you uh, you see now, uh, especially with the creativity. For sure. Now, you're still young, obviously, in your WWE career and in your career in total. Uh, but the part of your WWE career has been pretty chaotic. I mean, just three months after debuting on NXT, you showed up on Raw right at the start of the pandemic after WrestleMania. How exactly did that come about? Was it right place, right time? Is it something that you volunteered to do? They needed people? Like, how did you get that particular spot? And if you just say, hey, it's because I'm super talented and they wanted to bring me up, that's fine too. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, man. It was just one of those random things. You know, I was doing, uh, you know, doing NXT and uh, I just got a random call. Uh, and this was especially, you know, like you said, uh, during the pandemic and the Thunderdome era. Mm -hmm. 
um, or actually not even the Thunderdome era. I think it was it was, it was at the Performance Center. Yeah, Performance Center. Right? Yeah. Uh, I just remember being at home, you know, and I did all my stuff I needed to do for NXT and getting calls saying, hey, can you uh, can you come up here to Raw? Um, I think at the time somebody was injured in a tag team. Mm. Uh, so they brought me up to kind of fill that spot. And uh, I think they were just trying to figure stuff out and they were using a bunch of people. And I think me just being in the right place at the right time and already being choose for that team. It was like, oh, maybe uh, maybe we'll try this. And then you see me in the group with Seth Rollins. But I think it was. Uh, it was never anything permanent. It was never a, uh, a new contract or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just one of those things where, you know, you work for the WWE, we're a family and anytime anybody's needed. A uh, perfect example is uh, if you see me on a SmackDown, you know, I'm not on SmackDown, but if mm-hmm. I'm needed, I'll be there. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, just how it works. So I always, uh, I always get interviewed and, and I always, you know, get asked, uh, you know, I mean, it didn't work out for you the first time on the main roster, but I always say, you know, I was never on the main roster because you got to think I went to the PC every single day, right. you know, and I never I never experienced how it is on the on the road of the main roster. And, you know, everybody's going to be different because, you know, you, you have your order. You're trying to figure things out at the performance center. But, you know, on the road and stuff, it's completely different. And it's a different animal. And for me, um, my first actual time going to the main roster was when I got drafted, I feel like. Right. It was almost like you got a taste of it more than. You know the full sure experience. yeah that, that's fair to say uh now right. given we're just talking a couple of days after you made a surprise appearance at the end of nxt on tuesday how would you feel if you were wanted back there whether it's as champion or otherwise now that you have gotten this larger very significant taste of the main roster winning money in the bank u.s championship all that type of stuff uh i would say you know uh especially with nxt uh going through another change um i think it's definitely for uh the more so getting people ready to be that future of the wwe and i think within you know the past year i pretty much proved myself on the main roster and who i can hang with and uh you know the different elements that i can bring to the table mm-hmm. um i don't see i don't see anything wrong with uh and, and we've seen it in the past you know and we've seen it this past week you know look at uh rhea ripley from the judgment day going now going down there and having a match and and that just helps elevate that talent you know mm-hmm. and also uh, just getting to give NXT back Rhea Ripley. That's something right. that was exciting. And, and you could hear it genuinely from that. And everybody that was back there that night, uh, they gave us a great, you know, interaction. But for me, uh, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, you you stepping uh, down there to, to help out and, and, you know, promote things and, mm-hmm. and really just give that knowledge of what you've learned, you know, especially with me and a lot of those people down there, a lot of those people are, you know, around the same age as me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's not a lot of people 25 on the main roster. But uh, I, I feel like for me, that, that kind of shows the difference. And everybody sees that. And just being able to uh, to go back to NXT and and have that opportunity to uh, enhance that match, whether I want to cash in or not. Right. But uh, yeah. Now, my listeners would kill me because one of our favorite things on our show was the way. And that one year you had back. In NXT, working with Johnny and Candice and Indy, obviously, and eventually uh, Dexter Loomis as well. It was so so unique to have really two men and two women, the family dynamic and the stable. Obviously, your character in particular was hysterical. Who originally came up with that idea? And when you first got it kind of pitched to you, were you like wary about it at all? Or were you kind of excited right off the jump? No, man. So the idea was supposed to be, uh, you know, Austin Theory's on this losing streak and, uh, here comes, you know, Johnny Gargano along to take him under his wing. But at the same time, here's somebody like Candice. 
But I think the idea was actually for us to just be like their security to help them win more matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first thing we ever did was this uh, this Christmas episode uh, special. And I just remember uh, I was, you know, for me, I, I was starting to figure out things a different way. And I was like, man, I go out there, I can have a cool match, but nobody remembers me. Mm-hmm. But why is that? Because everybody has a cool match. You've got to. You've got to have people attached to your personality. And I was like, man, what is, what, what am I like, you know, who am I? And I was like, man, I I like to joke around. I like to have a good time. So how can I show that? And uh, I just tried something on the episode that kind of started working. And I think doing that kind of started playing off the idea of like, instead of us being bodyguards, it turned out to be more so a family. Mm -hmm. And now you get this dynamic of, you got this uh, this angry dad or, or this dad that's just wild. You have the son that's goofy. You have the hopeless romantic daughter. And then you have the mean mom. You know what I mean? It's And it all just kind of tied together. And I guess we can't forget uh, that crazy Dexter Loomis yeah. either. Of course. Uh, working with Johnny and Candace that closely for that long of a period of time. I mean, they have like 35 years of wrestling experience between them. They're not even really that old themselves. Was How beneficial was that to you in your career? Like working specifically with them seeing the way they go about things it was really easy and i'll say uh johnny definitely gave me a uh a comfort there you know because you know it's like a job you know you never you never know and you're always kind of on your toes but i think it really uh kind of calmed me down and, and let me realize like man just just try things man you know and and really let loose and uh you know don't don't be so strict on yourself cool uh i think we all know there's constant talk out there about you eventually fighting John Cena sooner or later. And this is a guy who you called your inspiration growing up as a kid, wanting to be in the industry. If that match was to go down, whether it's at WrestleMania, sometime in the future, how meaningful would that be to you? Well, I will say that it will go down. It will. All right. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, that's, man, that's, that's the match. That's, that's my match. Mm-hmm. That's the one I want. Uh, if we can up the stakes, then, uh, you know, me being the youngest undisputed WWE universal champion, uh, having that in that match. But honestly, man, I think Austin theory versus John Cena, that stands alone. There doesn't need to be a title, a stipulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need me and him in the ring together. And I think, uh, you know, from my side, I think people have heard it a million times, but I'll say it again. Uh, that's my dream match. Mm-hmm. That's definitely my dream match. I'll get you out of here on this. You did not have a long career in the independence before WWE, because how could you? You're only 25 years old. But while you did have that career, you wrestled some of the best of the best in that time. Will Ospreay, Zack Sabre Jr., Keith Lee, the list goes on. Thinking back of it, what was your favorite match or feud if fans wanted to go back and see what you were most proud of before coming to WWE? I would always say uh, when I got to do some stuff with AR Fox in Evolve, um, Mm -hmm. just because uh going back the history me and him have together uh being the person that solely you know uh really just gave me the blueprints all this man and and helped me figure this all out so fast um but we had a, a feud in evolve that was really cool and it was a uh, a teacher versus student story um pretty much saying you know the student has surpassed the teacher and ar fox being the guy that you know taught me the ropes and and taught me everything in wrestling um, so it's really cool, but that that's one that always stands out to me. And, you know, me and him got to wrestle all over the world together. So it was really cool, man. 
Awesome. Well, I'm quite sure you can find that most likely on Peacock or the WWE Network internationally. And Austin Theory, thanks again for joining us here. Again, you can catch him every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on Raw, and you can probably find him on SmackDown and NXT as well. Appreciate the time and really nice meeting. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. You got it. Thanks again to WWE and Austin Theory for making the time for us, allowing that interview to happen. It was absolutely great to talk to him. I think you all can pretty much tell on television that he has a long career in front of him, but he's also seemingly a great representative for WWE as well. We would go into a greater, deeper conversation and and discuss maybe some takeaways from that interview with Austin Theory, but we do have an absolutely loaded show. So I hope you all enjoyed it. And let me bring in vintage Chris Vanini. Let me bring him back so we can continue with the next two segments here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We still have the WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview to come. But before we get there, let's go into the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Say dude to give you ice and you own some... All right, so since we were talking about Austin Theory, let's just keep it rolling with him. We had Seth Rollins against Austin Theory in a non-title match on Raw. Theory said he demanded the match because Rollins dissed his ability to cash in the Money in the Bank briefcase on commentary last week. Rollins came out with highlights in his hair for a different look. Rollins got thrown into the steel steps. He came back with his signatures. They traded pinning combinations with Theory directly countering Rollins' rolling forearm and hitting the neckbreaker over his knee. Theory hit a rolling blockbuster, but Rollins escaped A-Town down twice. There were two great sequences between them. Theory talked some shit. He tried the pedigree, but Rollins countered by flipping Theory straight up into a front slam and hitting the stomp for the win in 15 minutes. And you'd think Austin Theory would know that Seth Rollins has a lot of experience escaping the pedigree. He had that entire feud with Triple H, and then he took the pedigree on the back end of it. But this was just an absolute banger of a match. Rollins made Theory look as legitimate in the ring as he has since joining the main roster. I would say there are two notable Austin Theory matches on the main roster. One was with Kevin Owens, and then there's this one, and I think this one was even better than that one. I went 4.25 stars and an A. You guys know I normally don't grade TV matches anymore. This one gets a grade. My one gripe, Chris, was the booking when you consider last week. It just didn't track for me. In storyline, Rollins put Theory over on commentary, and after the match, he raised his arm. So the booking of this was kind of forced. Now, Theory cut the promo. He tried to make it make sense, whatever. In reality, if Theory was going to take a loss, why not have him lose to the guy you're trying to build into being the number one contender, Mustafa Ali, instead of the champion who didn't need the win. Yes, Rollins did get Theory more over than Mustafa Ali would have, but he's not the main story. So that to me was a little bit confusing. Maybe all of that clarifies soon. Either way, though, this was very good. Yeah, match was great. And good to see Theory back and in a big match. And it's an example of a guy who can get over in a loss. You know, Austin Theory has taken a lot of losses ever since he won the Money in the Bank briefcase in a way that you don't take him seriously. But to have a long competitive match with Seth Rollins, who is the U.S. champion, is how you make it. Uh, you you make him seem credible again. So love the match. Looking was fine. Fine with Theory losing here. You're right. It, they kind of had to twist it into making sense. Um, but 
I was fine with that in the end. I, I don't think these two are going to be continuing with each other moving forward. No, I don't think so, so either. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as a one-off on that for a raw, yeah, it was good. Miz was nursing an injured jaw in the training room. We will talk about that later. There's more to that. Uh, saying he was focused on getting his match with Mustafa Ali canceled. And he wasn't worried about some taped interview with Johnny Gargano that was meant to expose him in the Dexter Loomis situation. Miz threatened to sue if it was aired without fact checking and stuff like that. Ali came up to make fun of Miz's tiny balls and he goaded him into doing their match anyway. So we got Miz against Ali. A rolling neckbreaker started it for Ali. Miz avoided a 450, hit a huge boot. Ali got a backstabber. Ali then slid out of a skull-crushing finale and hit a satellite DDT, where Miz should have but didn't sell his jaw because he took a DDT. Uh, Ali hit a flying crossbody outside, but Miz threw him over the announce table first, like up to the barricade, and then back over the announce table closer to the ring. As he did that, Loomis came out of the crowd. He tried choking the Miz. But the referee didn't call a disqualification for some reason, even though someone put their hands on Miz, I guess because it was a crowd member and not a wrestler, maybe. I don't know. The referee was looking right at him. Instead, or at least a no contest, if not a disqualification. Instead, Loomis got chased away by security. One security guard clean jumped the barricade. So that guy may get a WWE contract at some point. <laughs> uh, a distracted Miz in a huge super kick, and then Ali landed the 450 to win in 10 minutes. This was one of those like completely predictable match bookings where nothing is wrong with it. But at the same time, you're not going to get super excited about it either. Ali getting a win here was much needed after last week, and that makes it good, specifically given Miz's credentials. He's a what two-time Grand Slam winner, you know, two-time WWE champion. But commentary didn't sell that when Ali won. They should have said this is a monumental win for Mustafa Ali. He just beat the first ever two-time Grand Slam winner. On top of that, the win came cheaply. Because Miz was completely distracted by Loomis. I'd have preferred a less intense distraction and Ali getting over more in the finish, but at the end of the day, it was still good. Yeah, good to see Ali get a win. You know, we've, we've talked about it for a few weeks of, is this an actual push or not? Yeah, I don't know. Look, getting a win over Miz, even with some shenanigans, that counts. Getting Ali standing on the turnbuckle, celebrating a victory on Monday Night Raw does not happen very often. So... That was that was good to see. I thought the match was fine. It, was, it worked out. So, yeah, I, I thought this was good. So WWE did an entire 60 minutes spoof with Byron Saxton interviewing Gargano as the whistleblower on the Miz Loomis situation. Gargano went over what he knew about Loomis from being in his NXT family, and they even mentioned Loomis being fired. Then he said on the night of his return in Toronto, he overheard Miz and Loomis talking, so he recorded it. The recording revealed that Miz was paying Loomis to attack him as like a celebrity stalker to get himself publicity. Gargano even pointed out that Miz knew he would never beat Bobby Lashley in that United States Championship match, which explained the interference, because if you're going to lose anyway, you might as well use it to further the stalker storyline. Gargano then explained his theory that Miz has since stopped paying Loomis, which explains the more recent attacks, and Miz, Miz going back and hitting Loomis with the chair or doing the uh, skull-crushing finale into the chair a couple weeks ago. Corey Graves, after this was over, he did a great job selling this. He's like, this is sensationalist. It's rumors. It's bullshit. Miz should sue us. All this type of stuff after it was over. And I thought that really brought home the entire thing. Saxton was great here. And Gargano doing all of the reenactments himself, especially when he dressed up as Maurice, was hysterical. Whether this was the original storyline or not, I don't know. But it makes perfect sense in both kayfabe and reality. You have Miz working himself into a shoot brother 
because he's a B-lister who really does want to be an A-lister that he claims to be. That's top-tier storytelling. It explains how Loomis was so easily in his house and Miz lying about Tommaso Ciampa being abducted when he was actually just injured. All of it fits together. You really have to appreciate the effort put in by the creative team if this was not the plan all along. And if it was the plan all along, then it's even better because they just nailed all of this and every single element came together in a cohesive and complete storyline. Beyond that, the 60 Minutes parody was almost perfect, especially the name labels and all the accentuation graphics. Miz, not a good wrestler, like really funny stuff there. This was a really fun comedy segment. And yeah, it was good overall. Also explains why the Miz did not press charges. Correct. All these times and why he didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So first reaction, Johnny Gargano android phone all right i, I guess i, guess <laughs> I didn't okay. see that okay. green, green bubble guy yeah i noticed that that's a fail um, that's a big failure. this was this was hilarious this was so well done it was very creative great spot for byron saxton to be in gargano was hilarious it all made sense like you said it totally worked i i thought it was great there was another part when uh one of the some of the, the labels they would show on the screen and one of them was the ms terrible actor <laughs> which is funny. Um, so all of it was great. Definitely a good. That's the one I was my thinking only, about. Terrible actor. That was that was the graphic yeah. I was thinking about. Yeah. My only question is, I'm, I'm kind of surprised you don't, you know, reveal the lie in front of a live crowd. You know, like to get the crowd being, oh, and the Miz being like, no, no, no. And when he gets, seeing the Miz's reaction when he gets caught. Like that's what you would typically do in these situations because it's pro wrestling. A lot of it's in front of a crowd. Um, So I'm kind of surprised they didn't go that route. And and maybe the Miz is going to push back next week. I'm not sure. But um, that's just me probably being nitpicky. I I thought this was great. Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, Ronda Rousey did an open challenge on SmackDown. Rousey cut a horrendous promo that had one good line. Only the great can recognize greatness. That was a good line. Emma, Tennille Dashwood from, I think, Impact she was in, Mm -hmm. uh, answered the challenge, making her return to WWE. She had the gloves, the whole thing. Michael Cole did his best to put over Emma for her old NXT career. Emma got Rousey in the tarantula. She did a couple decent moves. Rousey delivered knees with Emma hanging over the bottom rope in a move that's now called the Ronda Conda. That was actually kind of cool. Emma refused to tap on two submissions and hit a deadlift wheelbarrow German suplex. It was probably the best move of the match. Rousey ran Emma into the referee, raked her eyes, hit Piper's pit, and retained the title with an armbar. In a career of bad promos, this may have been Rousey's worst, at least bottom five. And this match was awful. It may have been the longest seven-minute match that I've ever seen in my life. Emma got zero reaction from the crowd. Zero. Zero reaction from the crowd, which is not surprising. She's irrelevant in the WWE universe. She also moved like molasses. It was it was like watching a video on 0.5 speed. The fans didn't give a shit about her return and could not have cared less about this match. She was DOA. Like, Chris, I may have been wrong about Triple H re-signing Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows because they've been pretty damn entertaining so far. I don't think they were needed, but it's tough to admit that what they've done so far on WWE TV has not been really, really good. But this Emma signing is completely nonsensical when there are far more talented on the women on the main roster not being used at all and in NXT waiting to get called up. 
even if you need low card talent for the women's division, there's call-ups that could start in that role. The only positive here is I did think Rousey looked really good in the ring. Like she was moving the best she has maybe since her return, like this time around. But with Emma's return, them thinking that was a big deal, the quality of the match, Rousey's promo, this was bad. Do we know that Emma is signed? I believe she signed. Instead of just a one-off? I believe she signed. Okay. My first thought upon this, and you're right that she got no reaction, but part of the reason she was never going to get a reaction was because they didn't have her old music, which might have been a CFO's type of thing. Probably. But like, that's that's the connection you make. Like when Summer Rae comes back in the Royal Rumble, you hear the music and you're like, oh, wait, I remember that from eight years ago. Oh, it's Summer Rae. It was just like generic music. And then Emma and you're like, oh, oh, OK. And you're right. Emma was not a very big character in any time during WWE that she was like that memorable. But I thought the music didn't help. The promo from Rhonda, bad. A- another one of those situations where it feels like she's starting her promo in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> yes. Like, like you're, you're just like you're interrupting. You're catching her in the middle of a conversation. Um, match was bad. Yeah, look, I like Rhonda going heel. And I thought the promo she did, was it last week? Behind yes. the scenes? Last week was, was good backstage. Yeah. Was was good. It was good. Yeah. But this one back in front of the crowd, back to not working. Backstage after this match and situation, Shayna Baszler praised Rousey's win. Natalia stepped up saying Ronda got lucky because if she had answered the open challenge, Natalia would have won. So Baszler like sidled up behind Natalia and just straight up choked her out. Rousey and Baszler finally aligning. I think that's a great development. But as we said previously, it would have been nice for this to happen as a tag team that elevates the women's tag team division. Why does the baddest woman on the planet need a heavy? Like them tagging would have made so much more sense overall. It would have kept the main title off of Rousey until she needs it for WrestleMania. But overall, I love that Baszler and Rousey are finally together after all this time. So I am going with good for this. Yes. Um, You know, it's something we've asked for for a while. And I'm curious to see where it goes. So yes, not much there and we'll see. But I I like the potential of it for sure. Uh, I guess Mysterio. Oh, I thought you were done. My bad. Uh, Rey Mysterio was expressing. I didn't give it a grade, so I keep interrupting here. Now it's your turn. Here we go. (laughs) Rey Mysterio was expressing his excitement to challenge for the Intercontinental title again when Imperium literally threw a chair at him and then held his arms (laughs) while Gunther chopped him in the chest. It would have been nice to get like a little bit more build for this. It was the first of a handful of segments on SmackDown that really just weren't much of anything. It was good, but, you know, it wasn't bad. Yeah, I didn't have much any reaction to it. It just kind of happened and it made sense. So, yeah. sure. Default, this is what we would call this a default good is what we'll do. Mm. Uh, Sonya Deville was backstage looking pretty great, I think, in her all black suit, saying Liv Morgan was broken by losing the title to Ronda Rousey at Extreme Rules. Liv attacked again, but Sonya was more ready for her this time. And it was an even brawl until they were separated and held back. And they're going to do a no disqualification match next week. This was a build for that. I thought the segment was very repetitive. It just would have been nice to them be in a different area. Um, It was literally like the same spots. I mean, granted, it wasn't the same spots, but it was the backstage interview segment, a road case, brawling on the floor. Like it was almost identical to what they did like two weeks ago. So it was repetitive, but it was executed well. So it was good. Another default good, I'd say. Yeah, same thing. 
Okay. Uh, Matt Riddle fought Otis on Raw in a trick or street fight. Riddle came out dressed like Ezekiel, dragging Elias along to get his back. I did think that was funny. Alpha Academy came out wearing Chippendales gimmicks with Otis basically doing the Chris Farley role and Chad Gable doing the Patrick Swayze role from Saturday Night Live. Two SNL references on this show. Uh, Candy wound up all over the ring. Otis did his old worm elbow drop. Riddle ran into him with a chair or ran him into a chair, I should say, in the corner. Beat him with a candy corn kendo stick. Gable interfered. Elias took him off the apron with a lifted knee that sent Gable backwards through a table outside. Otis hit Riddle with the world's strongest slam, but Riddle avoided the Vader bomb. Elias put a pumpkin on Otis's head. Otis like sauntered over to him so he could put the pumpkin on his head without any fight. And Riddle hit the RKO with the pumpkin on the head for the win. I want to make this very clear. What I'm about to say has nothing to do with this being a holiday gimmick match. I know WWE is going to do these for every holiday, whether it's Vince McMahon, whether it's Triple H, they're going to do them. We're going to get one for Thanksgiving. We're going to get one for Christmas. We're going to get one for New Year's. It's just going to happen, okay? And I have come to learn to appreciate them for the corniness of the entire thing. But this one was not entertaining. It was slow and boring. The continued cooling off of Riddle is absurd. The best things by far were the costumes. The, the fact that the three of them were in funny costumes was great. But that isn't what the segment about is about. It's about the wrestling and the action. And this was bad. Sorry. I completely disagree. I don't think this was about the wrestling at all. It was about the costumes. It was the it was the it was the holiday themed. They had like a 10 minute match. match. How could it be about the costumes? I mean, you you could say, well, look, all the matches in WWE are basically longer at this point. And they are in the middle of feuding. So it's not like you can do a five minute but deal. What is, what is this feud? Why is Riddle with Elias? It, it, no, I agree. I, sucks, I agree. We, we've said this several weeks. Elias and Riddle together have zero chemistry. Zero. Are not good. But just this specific segment. Costumes were hilarious. They were. And and the match was fine. And, and then kind of botched the end, but it was supposed to be the RKO with the pumpkin on the head. And so, like, it was fine. It was good. I was entertained. And, and ultimately, I think that's all it was trying to do um, because this is a middle slash low mid card. I agree that Riddle sh- should be in a completely different position, uh, you know, from, from where he is right now. And his character now makes no sense. but. For what this was on this show, I thought it was good. I thought Chad Gable was Chad Gable not even in the match. Incredible entrance on on, on the the costume and everything, and Otis was funny. I liked it. Bless you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, Legado del Fantasma fought Hit Row and a mystery partner on SmackDown. Shinsuke Nakamura entered as the mystery partner to a huge pop as the surprise. The faces attacked the heels before the bell. With B Fab booting Zelina Vega and the heels doing Shinsuke's. Come on, taunt. And when I say heels, I mean faces. Because why would heels do that? It was the faces that did it. Uh, Top Dalla did his two-man World Strongest Slam. And then actually did a pretty decent, like, Escalera hammer throw or something like that before Nakamura hit Kinshasa for the win in five minutes. I didn't love Legato losing here. Nakamura getting the win, though, made sense. Um, they're clearly going to trade victor- victories between these two groups until this ends. This was good for Nakamura's return and the shenanigans of the entire thing, but was it anything special? No. I mean, it, it just, it happened. I kind of wanted to give this one a bad, just so based on the, um, just, just based on the booking. Like, Otto should not have lost this match. Like, the, the, I, 
You don't can't have like, Shinsuke return though and lose. That's the problem. Well, then don't put Shinsuke in this match. That's I, the I'm solution. saying. I just I, <laughs> you had you had Legado del Fantasma lose to Hit Row. They should not be losing to Hit Row. I don't. I know Shinsuke was involved, but like Shinsuke's not like you know Bobby Lashley or something like that. So it, that was. Uh, I, I thought the match was fine. and Everything. I just don't. You know, we'll get into it. But Damage Control's taking a lot of losses. Now you got Legado del Fantasma losing in a spot where I don't think they they should. Just um. Not a fan. Yeah, I, I mean, there's something to be said for that, I guess. But Nakamura, you have to remember, he's in this like, what was the Jeff Hardy role in WWE of just like that legend mm-hmm. who people know is great and they love to see them. They're going to pop every time he's there. And when he's there, he's usually going to win. Like, that's his role. So you're right. If just put someone else in that spot, Angelo Dawkins, and let Hit Row lose, that's what it should have been. But because they're extending this feud, clearly they want this to go a little bit longer. Eventually, I have to assume Legato is going to win the final match of the feud. Before we get there, I guess you have to give Hit Row one or two wins. And if you're going to give them a win, doing it with Shinsuke Nakamura is way better than doing it without Shinsuke Nakamura. That's what I will say. Uh, LA Knight was about to introduce himself backstage when Ricochet interrupted, saying people might like him more if he didn't act like God's gift to SmackDown. Knight agreed he was God's gift and walked off with Ricochet promising someone would shut his mouth if he kept running it. I saw nothing wrong with this. I don't love the idea of Ricochet losing tonight right out of the gate because you have to assume LA Knight's going to win his first match or his first real match. But it's not like he's doing much else right now. I saw people shitting on Rick for this segment. Like his promo was bad. I thought there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. Ronda Rousey's promo was 10 times worse than what Ricochet did. I thought this was good. Yeah, it was good. I honestly just wanted more. You know, I've talked about I'm a big LA Knight guy. Get him in front of the crowd, talk shit, get the crowd to boom, get some cheap heat, and yeah. go from there. I, he's had a number of backstage segments instead. It would be like, all right, all right, sure. I mean, it was fine. It was good. I'm looking forward to uh, their match. I hope, as always, whenever you have a segment with LA Knight, if it's a match, he's got to have a promo in there somewhere. You got to let this guy keep talking. So we'll yep. see. Uh, New Day fought Maximum Male Models. Kofi Kingston did a frog splash to Mansois in the crouching position, with Xavier Woods hitting a devastating midnight hour for the win in four minutes. This was done to basically get New Day a win before I presume they challenge for the titles once the Usos are even closer to breaking their record. So while the four-minute time limit wasn't really a problem given the circumstances, it was kind of a missed opportunity to showcase the Maximum Male Models gimmick against a team in New Day that has no problem doing comedy. Like if there's one team on the whole roster where you can do a nine, 10 minute comedy match with, it's New Day. And they had the chance to do that here, but they didn't. So a four minute squash, this whole thing could have been better. So I went with bad here. I I agree. I, I, I liked what they did. I just wanted a little bit more. The, the models got some offense in, which was good. I mean, it's a four minute squash. It's not a two minute squash. They were pretty funny. I liked the, the pose they did uh, in, in the ring. I just watched it and I was like, oh man, there's like a lot of potential to be a really solid comedy bit here. Yeah. And I wish we had gotten, I just wish we had gotten more of it. So I, I'm right on that good, bad, where we're basically I'm just like, would have just liked a little bit more. So, you know, I don't know. And the other question I, I, I had when this came up was, are we not getting Mansoor or Mansoir, I guess, in Saudi Arabia this year, I guess? I would presume no, unless they do a dark match. And I think they usually do a dark match yeah. for Crown Jewel. So maybe he'll be over there anyway. Yeah. That's it? Okay. Uh, JBL caught a promo on Texas. Oh, actually, before I get to JBL, shout out to Xavier Woods and potential Wheel of Fortune spoiler alert in case anyone didn't, doesn't know. So Xavier Woods as Austin Creed, which is his gaming persona technically, 
was on Celebrity Wheel of Fortune this past Sunday. And I, I've seen Wheel of Fortune plenty throughout my life. I prefer Jeopardy. But regardless, I decided to tape and watch the episode because I love Xavier Woods and I want to see him. This guy dominated this show. <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating. He must have won nine out of 10 games on the show. And he walked away with $100,000 for his charity. It, it was oh, one wow. of the greatest Wheel of Fortune performances I've ever seen from an individual person. Now, I don't think he won either of the, I don't know what they're called on pri- prices, right? They're called the showcases. Whatever the thing is, the end of each round where like you can win, you spin the wheel and you can make even more money. He didn't win either of those. Both of them were tough, but every, like he won the quick ones. I don't know what any of the things are called. I don't watch Wheel of Fortune. He won the ones where you just buzz in and guess right away. He won the ones where you spin the wheel and do the, pick the letters. He won every single thing on this show. So I highly suggest, uh, I assume it's, available um, on video on demand, whoever, if you have cable or I'm sure you can get streaming somewhere, watch this episode of Wheel of Fortune with Xavier Woods. He has everyone cracking up. He's his total authentic self and he dominates the game. Huge shout out to Austin Creed for that. Just wanted to say that. Very cool, very cool. Uh, So JBL cut a promo on Texas and its great sports teams before turning it around on the woke millennials who now live in the state. Chris, you can speak to this as a Texan Outside of like pockets and major cities, I'm not sure woke culture is the proper way to describe Texas as a whole. Yeah, no, I agree, and you'll probably you'll probably learn that on uh, next Tuesday as, as well. <laughs> look, I, I I thought this was a look. I, I have JBL, more to say, but I just want yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Fi- finish up on JBL then. Yeah, I just wanted to get you in for that. Uh, Baron Corbin criticized the fans for working hard to earn money to come see him, which was like a weird thing to criticize people about. R-Truth came out dressed like a cowboy with a toy horse. He did his normal comedy. He got up on Corbin until JBL threw his hat at him. Corbin hit end of days. My only takeaway is that JBL finally found a tailor. So congratulations to him. (laughs) I literally felt like my life was wasting away watching this segment. This was not good. This was not bad. I kind of don't want to give it ugly because R-Truth was in it, but I have to. This was ugly. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Zero point zero. JBL is a very good promo. And you could tell with everything you just laid out there, he got the crowd up, had him in the palm of his hand, and then ripped it away kind of with, with some of that stuff. He, he's very, very good at that. The problem is he's so good at it and he's getting himself over so much that Corbin is secondary to what he's mm-hmm. doing. <laughs> he's spending more time just cutting a promo and then he'll like cut a great promo and then be like, and yeah, yeah. And Baron Corbin too. Like it's not, that's not how the dynamic is supposed to work. It's supposed to be just JBL should be behind Corbin promoting him the whole time. Have them come out together and Corbin stand in front and JBL just taught like there's just the order of all of this is not is not working. And JBL is very talented on the mic that it's taking away from Corbin when he then gets on the mic and he's fine on the mic, but he's not as good as JBL. So it's just the they keep kind of tweaking this every week and and um, trying to figure it out. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember. They didn't have JBL on commentary for anything here, right? I don't believe he was on commentary here. And that was something. No, no, no. Before. There was no match. It was. Yeah. That's, that's why I didn't think. It just he, ended after think, that. Yeah. That's why I thought he just kind of stuck around, which is a positive because we, we talked about how him on commentary was 
way overwhelming and not working. So we didn't do that. But yeah, this ultimately did nothing. And the only thing I remember from this is JBL talking about how much he loves Texas, (laughs) which is not the, which is not what you're trying to do with the segment. So doesn't accomplish anything. Definitely, definitely, definitely a bad, it wasn't like offensive. So it wasn't offensive, but I just certainly a bad, it wasn't offensive in the way that we normally categorize ugly things, but I was bored to tears. I, I was watching. I, as soon as JBL come out, I'm like, here we go. And if if I say that to start a segment and it doesn't mm-hmm. turn me around, it's ugly. Like if mm-hmm. I already hate it before it begins, it's ugly. That, that's that's I my, that's I gonna be my JBL new rule. W- I just I thought JBL was good, but JBL was not the point of the But segment, he's always so. decent to good on the mic. Right. To great. He's, saying, he's great on the mic. He is. But that's yeah. not, you're right. Like we, this is what we've been saying for weeks now. It's not the point. It's not helping Baron Corbin. And again, Baron Corbin. The whole point in taking him away for two months or three months, however long it was, two months, I think, and bringing him back is to refresh his gimmick and character. And they didn't. They just gave him JBL. That's all they did and changed his name from Happy to Baron. They didn't do shit. Total waste. It's horrible. One of the worst repackage, quote unquote, repackaging in WWE history. Uh, There was a fourth Viking Raiders vignette on SmackDown. It was almost identical to the first three. We're not talking about that. I just wanted to say one more thing before we get into move on from this segment. WWE did a really cool thing on Raw. Uh, Given it was Halloween, they showed a ton of pictures of fans dressed up like superstars during their ring entrances. And they did this throughout the entire night. Imagine being a kid or even an adult and getting that kind of shout out on national television. And I also just thought it was cool. Like, you know how we always criticize kind of AEW for uh, on TV commentary. We're the best and we have the best wrestlers and we're the most fun show and we have the highest ratings and a million, a million viewers. WWE, they do that sometimes in like those um, those single screen graphics where they promote like how many views something got, but commentary never really talks about it right? or does anything like that. This is a really cool way to kind of show the impact and reach of WWE because there are so many kids and adults out there dressing up like their favorite superstars. I just thought this was a really smart, fun little added element to the production for the show. And I also like that in many instances, not every instance, which was slightly annoying, the logo and the design of the, the stuff was orange instead of red because it was Halloween. I wish they had done an entire orange and black gimmick instead of just some of it orange and some of it still red. But it, I just thought it was really cool. The way everything looked, the way it was produced, it was a really nice episode of Raw in that regard. Yeah, I agree, especially with showing the, the costumes and stuff like that. Like It's just like a little thing that shows their reach without like hitting over the head with it. So, yeah, it was good. Exactly. So that is everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week that did not directly impact WWE Crown Jewel, which means it is now time for our WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. Vintage Chris Vanini, the Silver King Adam Silverstein, we are going to break down every single match on the card. We're going to tell you what happened on Raw and SmackDown leading into these matches, of course, we don't know what's going to happen on the Go Home SmackDown this coming Friday. It technically is already taped, uh, but I don't read the spoilers, so we're not going to give you any spoilers here. So feel free. Spo- you can know that this is a spoiler-free segment, at least when it comes to SmackDown. Uh, but we're going to break down every match. We're going to give you predictions, our thoughts on how storylines are going to continue. And then at the very end, we're going to give you a pre-show expectation grade for Crown Jewel. And of course, do not forget, on Saturday... After WWE Crown Jewel ends, we will have an instant analysis podcast for you right here at Getting Over. So, Chris, let's start with the low part of the card and move all the way 
to the main event. I guess the lowest thing on the card, because it was just announced uh, on uh, Monday, is that Bray Wyatt's going to make an appearance. I don't think there's anything for us to discuss here, given what we talked about in the main event regarding Bray Wyatt. Uh, we basically just need to wait and see what they do with him. I assume you have nothing to add, but I want to give you the opportunity before we move on. I do not. Okay. Although there is one thing I wanted to say. So you do. Up top. <laughs> not about Bray. Oh, okay. But just, uh, we're talking Crown Jewel here now? Or sure. Or are talking waiting for SmackDown? I just wanted to point out, you know, we, we, we call this show Blood Money in the Sand for a reason. And I just wanted to bring up something real quick that uh, happened yeah. recently involving Saudi Arabia. A U.S. a seventy-two year old U.S. citizen was uh, sentenced to sixteen years in prison in Saudi Arabia for tweets he posted while in the United States that were critical of the Saudi regime. Uh, his son spoke to the Washington Post uh, about it, and he's reportedly been uh, tortured in prison. So, just kind of wanted to lay that out to remind everybody kind of what the situation is as we go into this and how we don't love that this is happening. No, and we true. acknowledge that. That is true. We normally spend a good portion of our uh, verbiage on blood money in the sand instead of crown jewel. I've probably stopped doing it on this episode for expediency sake because Chris, you and I, before the show, talked about moving things along as quickly as we possibly could. But yes, you are a thousand percent right. We do uh, cover the show. We preview it. We break it down at the end because it's happening and we can't get around the fact that it is existing. But we certainly obviously individually uh, and as a show do not support, um, you know, that regime or anything that happens over there. And and we don't like that WWE has shows over there. And the vast majority of the WWE shows that have been over there have been awful. I think there's been one and a half good shows in the history of this relationship. This one does seem like a more uh, normal, again, premium live event for the third time in a row where the matches actually matter with the storylines that are ongoing for the most part, you know, not all of them. Um, but yes, we we don't love the fact that this event happens there. We don't like the fact this event happens there at the same time. It is our job to cover WWE, and this is their penultimate premium live event of 2022. Blood Money in the Sand, Crown Jewel, whichever you prefer. Uh, so let's get into the match card and break that down. Braun Strowman is going to fight Omas. On SmackDown, Braun in a tape promo recalled a saying that there's always someone bigger and stronger than you. He admitted that Omas is bigger, but not stronger given all the stuff he's flipped. Uh, Strowman said bigger isn't always better, and the challenge not only excites him, but motivates him. I thought it was a pretty solid promo, actually. Better. This promo from Braun was better than any segment they've done in this entire feud. And then on Raw, we had MVP cutting a promo on Braun, saying he can destroy cars and trucks, but he won't measure up to Omas. Then MVP said he had a surprise for uh, Strowman on SmackDown. This was the one spoiler I actually saw, and it is so minor that I'm going to tell you what it is, because Chris... It's not going to make either of us happy. And the spoiler okay. is that Braun's going to fight five dudes at once instead of two or four. So, oh, you know, we're just getting the exact same thing again. I think it's fair to say that you and I, I'm speaking for you here. We respect the big, meaty men slapping meatness of this. We appreciate that it's two giants going head to head and we think it's going to make for a big spectacle. I have no thoughts that it's going to be a good match. I really don't give a shit about it. They've done nothing in the build to make me care about it. And I have Braun Strowman winning because there is no way Strowman came back to immediately lose to Omos unless the only thing they could possibly do is a double disqualification, no contest, where they just brawl into the crowd and, and tear shit apart. That's the only way this ends without Braun Strowman winning. So Braun is my pick. Also picking Braun. I'm like, I'm looking forward to this, just the dynamic of these two giant dudes and how it's going to look. It's a, it's a spectacle match. 
and I am looking forward to it. This is the one thing I think you could do with these guys that would be fun. Wish this was happening in front of the United States where you get a crowd to really react to it, but uh, we will see. The Braun promo on SmackDown, he, he kind of messed up the line when, when he was trying to describe that there's always somebody bigger or strong or whatever. The line is from your one of your favorite uh, movie uh, movies, which is Star Wars, which is <laughs> I, thought, Gwai- I thought you were actually going to mention one of my real favorite movies for a second. Which is okay. Gwai Jin in episode one, The Phantom Mentis, says <laughs> there's always a bigger fish. What was involves- it? Wait, wait, stop, pause, 30 second time out. What was the name of that person again? Gwagon Jin, played by Liam Neeson. <laughs> okay, good. Continue. He's a Jedi, and they're 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 going through the planet's core underneath, and they're going under the ocean, and there's a big fish chasing them, and they it's eaten by a bigger fish, and then it happens again. And Gwagon Jin says, "There's always a bigger fish." That's the line. That's like the famous line from the thing. So he didn't quite get that line right. Uh, also, Monster of Monsters is a really dumb tagline for him. I thought Monster Among Men was great. Like, like monster of monsters makes him less unique. Yeah, <laughs> there, 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 there are. There, that means there's a bunch of monsters, and he's just the monster of them all. I, that's too much. I liked Monster Among Men. Uh, just wanted to point that out. Braun is the pick. Um, instead of millions of squash matches against tiny dudes, I would have loved something like strength tests. Like do do, do like yes. Arm wrestling, do, yeah, yeah arm trite, wrestling, do like do, do some, yeah, do some like fun stuff and lean into the gimmick gimmickness of all this. They could have done the whole like promos. pulling each of them have a truck and they try to pull it at the same time. Who yeah, gets it further, yeah. faster? An like arm Mark wrestling Henry, match, like Mark Henry and like Mark Henry and Ryback used to. Do. Yes, yes, exactly. It's it's unbelievable that they haven't done any of that. I mean, maybe there's something coming beyond what I just told you on SmackDown, but you're a thousand percent right. How have they not done that? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Anyway, that's too much talking about this match. Braun wins. Yeah, you're right. We're spending way too much time on it. Uh, the OC is going to fight Judgment Day in a six-man tag team match on Raw. We had Carl Anderson against Damian Priest. Anderson straight up punched Dominic Mysterio at ringside, seemingly for no reason. I thought that was really funny. Rhea Ripley distracted Anderson, but as Priest went for the final reckoning, Anderson countered him into a backslide for the one, two, three. I actually was happy that Anderson got his win back here because he lost his first singles match since coming back and they did it in a way where it didn't hurt Priest. So I just, I kind of appreciated that Anderson got a win here. All six men brawled after the bell. Ripley low-blowed Luke Gallows and dared the men to attack her, providing enough distraction for Judgment Day to get up on the faces. Priest hit the razor's edge on AJ Styles. Finn Balor hit Anderson with the coup de gras, and Dom did Eddie's frog splash on Styles to end the entire thing. Ripley then did the HBK Diesel high five, with Priest, and she's been doing that outside the ring recently. So I think it's really funny that they're kind of calling back to that. Uh, The booking here clearly seems to indicate the turning point of this feud will be when the OC gets a woman to help them and negate the Ripley advantage. But the problem is the woman who they need to negate the Ripley advantage is Beth Phoenix, except that storyline involves Edge, not the OC. So I don't exactly know how this whole thing is going to work. It makes me a little concerned, even though I'm very, I'm pretty confident, or I was, the men's war games match was going to involve the bloodline and the brawling broods, probably plus Drew McIntyre. It's starting to get me a little concerned that it might be like the OC and Edge against Judgment Day and another guy or three men and one woman with with OC finding a woman to be their fourth. I, I just don't exactly know what is happening here or what the end goal is. I thought what we got Monday was fine to promote the match, but it was repetitive. 
definitely repetitive, but I, I'm still enjoying it. Uh, th- these groups. I mean, I, I really is as, as dumb as the name is. I really am kind of enjoying what we're, we're getting from the OC so far. So that's been nice. This is a really tough match to pick. Honestly, um, judgment day has been getting a lot of wins, but the OC got one on Monday. So I think I'm going to go with judgment day. I think ultimately they're the more important group, not faction. Well, they are a faction, but in this scenario group, uh, they're the more important group. And um, I think you're right. Rhea Ripley probably causes the win and maybe they find some other woman to get involved. I actually didn't give a prediction. So you're <laughs> I wasn't right about anything, but <laughs> but you um, that that's your pick. And I think it's a good one. I, I'm mixed here because, again, the way the OC theoretically would win this is if that woman reveals herself. She runs down, negates Ripley, allows the OC to beat the Judgment Day. But I have to believe like the end goal of this entire thing, and maybe it's not, but I have to think it's Edge and Beth Phoenix against Rhea Ripley and a guy, probably Finn Balor, or maybe Damian Priest potentially, at a show upcoming. And if it's not that, then maybe they did all of this just to lead into Beth and Rhea separately as a singles match at like WrestleMania, which would leave this open to continue developing with a woman joining the OC and doing all that. But the last time a woman stood beside AJ Styles, it was Liv Morgan and it was awesome, but it was also only for like a week (laughs) and she disappeared. I think she actually stood by AJ Styles and Finn Balor, if memory serves, against the Mm -hmm. Edge version of the Judgment Day. So I just don't exactly know what the plan is or what they're going to do here, but I agree in lieu of being spoon-fed who the woman would theoretically be to help the OC, it does seem like Ripley continues to have that advantage. And I don't know why suddenly at Blood Money in the Sand, that advantage wouldn't come into play. Having the OC beat the Judgment Day, it doesn't really accomplish anything. Judgment Day is the group and faction that needs to continue getting booked strong. So yes, I do agree with you. And I am going to pick and predict the Judgment Day as well. Uh, Drew McIntyre is going to fight Karrion Cross inside a steel cage on SmackDown. Cross fought Madcap Moss. It was a bit surprising to see Moss get a ton of offense in this match. He really ran through Cross at points, and he was in the middle of a really big run when Scarlett climbed onto the steel steps. That distracted him and let Cross get the upper hand with a Saito suplex, a really shitty forearm to the back of the head for the win in 10 minutes. Cross put in the cross jacket after the bell while simultaneously cutting a promo on McIntyre saying Moss put up a better fight than he did. He called McIntyre a coward and a hypocrite who only stands for his own ambitions while he stands for the new beginning. Then he promised history will repeat itself and he kept the submission locked in. So this match did way more for Moss than it did for Cross. This would have been a great way and hopefully is a great way to write Moss off and have him return with a new gimmick that is something other than fucking madcap. Cross was boring as sin in the ring here, but I did think the post-match was really intense. So I liked what we got on SmackDown. Yes, I like that promo while you're choking the guy out. That mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Um, the rest of it, sure, fine. But I, I, I did think it accomplished what it was, which is to kind of build toward the match with, with Drew. Okay, I thought you might have more there. That's totally fine. Uh, so we're getting yeah. McIntyre Cross 2. Uh, what was the first stipulation? A strap? Uh, yeah. Strap match. That kind of came out of nowhere, right? And we were really kind of surprised. We weren't surprised to see Cross win because we both thought that Cross needs to win his first major match, given the way he had been booked since rejoining WWE. 
But I just do not see this guy beating Drew McIntyre two times in a row, especially at Crown Jewel in a spot where the baby faces generally go over, and especially in a steel cage match. The steel cage does not negate Scarlet. She can do stuff, you know, through the cage, the fireball. Uh, theoretically, I guess she could come up from the mat because they're mystic and they do all that crazy shit. But I do think largely the purpose of the cage in this spot is to keep them in there and give McIntyre away to ensure that Cross um, doesn't win through any shenanigans that we would expect. Um, yes, I guess you could also do like Scarlet slamming the door on Drew's head and then Cross walking out. Like all those things are possible. But I am going to go ahead and pick Drew McIntyre winning here, uh, regaining a little bit of momentum. And I do think the ultimate goal, even though I'm, I got thrown off a little bit by the OC and Judgment Day, I do think the ultimate goal is Bloodline versus Brawling Brutes and McIntyre at uh, Survivor Series War Games, and they're going to need Drew to be coming off a win if they're going to put him in that match. Therefore, that is my pick. I agree. Just Drew straight up just because I don't think he's going to lose twice to cross. That's, that's, that's all we need to know, really. Um, you know, they're throwing all sorts of stipulations on these matches to try to make it more exciting. Yeah, Drew wins. Yeah, uh, we have the undisputed tag team championships on the line. The Usos defending against the Brawling Brutes. We don't have anything else uh, to mention from SmackDown, given we already talked about it in the main event. So this is just a breakdown of the match itself. The Brawling Brutes, I think uh, Butch, Pete Dunne, and uh, Ridge Holland have really been fantastic. The face turn has completely revitalized them. It's clear that Ridge is getting better in the ring. Butch going back to Pete Dunne, uh, not just the gear, but the mannerisms and the work and the way he acts in the ring, not being, you know, as crazy of a um, Tasmanian devil type of character. The Brawling Brutes are, are the best they have ever been, which is great, but there's no situation in which they are winning the championships off the Usos at Blood Money in the Sand. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the team that ultimately beats the Usos for the tag team titles, we've discussed it numerous times. It really does seem like it's potentially going to be like Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens, if not them, another team like the Street Profits. It needs to be a big team, a big deal type of situation. It doesn't make sense for it to be the brawling brutes. So this is really easy. I have the Usos winning. I think there is probably going to be another post-match attack. Um, I know Sami Zayn does go over there and he donates his money to Sami for Syria, what he gets paid because it is blood money in the sand. So I could see a situation where Sami and Solo are there. They beat up the brawling brutes after. And then whether it's next week on SmackDown or two weeks from now on SmackDown, they return with Sheamus. Drew McIntyre gets their back, and that set up, sets up war games. So my pick to retain the titles is the Usos. Uh, yes, Usos are going to win, but I do think this should be a banger of a match. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Also, the the Usos continue to get up to the New Day record. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the New Day are now at 465. And the record is New Day's 483. The Usos are at 465. Sorry, the Usos are at 465. The New Day's at 483. So you're about two weeks so, away, a little bit less than two yeah. weeks. So that yeah. to me, that to me says Brawling Brutes win here next week on SmackDown. New Day challenges for the titles. Fails. And the Usos get the record. Yeah, I think so too. Okay. Uh, we have the Raw Women's Championship, Bianca Belair defending against Bailey in a last woman standing match. And I wish we could immediately go and break this down, but we have a ton to talk about here uh, for this segment. So on Raw, we had Belair against Nikki Cross in a non-title match stemming from the attack last week. Nikki came out doing some of her old manic mannerisms, but with a really generic theme that didn't work for her. 
Cross trapped Belair in the ring apron, beat on her. She also blocked the handspring moonsault with double knees. With both down outside, damage control ran down to distract the referee. Bailey threw Belair into the ring post, so Cross took out all three damage control women, but Belair caught her back inside with the kiss of death for the win in nine and a half minutes. Belair got triple teamed briefly after the bell and sold an injured knee until Asuka and Alexa Bliss returned in timely fashion to save the champion. Bliss ended it with a cannonball off the apron into all three of the heels. Belair thanked them backstage with Asuka and Bliss, promising to have her back at Crown Jewel after they got a women's tag team title match on Raw. That's what they wanted. So I saw some people angry because we're back to square one with every woman involved here. And I do think there is some credence to that because this has gone on way too long and it's fairly developed in an interesting or like noteworthy way. But the problem is WWE is specifically building to war games. And now they have officially set up an obvious four-on-four match with Cross, clearly joining the heels, even though she attacked them in this spot. We'll talk about why that's the case in a little bit. And we have Candice LeRae, who wasn't on the show, seems to be an obvious fourth member for the babyface side. There's nothing wrong for me with Cross losing her first match since reverting her gimmick. She lost to a dominant women's champion, and she took her 10 minutes and got a ton of offense. She also looked really good in the ring against Bianca, so I thought that was a positive. It is fair to be tired of the storyline, even though the wrestling here was solid. I am tired of the storyline, and this is going to be a theme as we talk about this entire thing here. Uh, But the wrestling was good. I agree. All right, so we did end up getting a women's tag team championship match in the main event. Damage control defending against Asuka and Bliss. Bailey was shown talking to Cross backstage later. I thought it was giving away the finish, but it seemed to perhaps rather impact the match at Crown Jewel. Dakota and EO Sky ranted backstage about being forced to defend the titles. Bailey reminded them how much they've gone through, promising it wouldn't be all for naught either Monday on Raw or Saturday. Belair accompanied the challengers to the ring. Asuka and EO had a great sequence together. Fans like got on their feet and chanted for them. It was really cool. Uh, Bliss got the hot tag and hit a great code red out of the corner on Dakota. EO nailed Asuka with a strong running Meteora and a springboard dropkick. Asuka then countered her flying with a code breaker counter. Uh, I guess a counter counter. I said it twice. It's fine. Uh, she got EO tapping out in the Asuka lock, but Bailey was distracting the referee, so he didn't see it. Kai broke it with a dropkick. Belair crossbodied Bailey into the timekeeper's area. Asuka and Kai traded kicks. Bailey then took Belair off of the barricade with a Bailey to Belly through this huge table that was set up in the crowd. And then Bliss ran Kai into the steps. Asuka avoided the moonsault and hit Kai with a roundhouse kick as Bliss followed with Twisted Bliss for the tag team title change in 17 minutes to a huge pop and a bunch of pyro to end the show and Cross never showed up in the main event. I want to clarify that the moonsault and the roundhouse kick all happened to Io and not Dakota Kai. Well, this was a total surprise, Chris. I guess they really couldn't do the match again without changing the titles and making it feel even more repetitive than it already was. So of course the answer is, well, just don't do the match and have a singles match or do something else instead, totally. But they did do the match and they did change the titles. Even 12 hours later with us taping this show, I'm not sure whether I like the decision. The booking of it was definitely strong. You had Bailey, who prioritized taking Bel Air out over ensuring that her girls retained their titles. And that happened just like an hour, maybe even less, after promising to have their backs. That's counter to everything she's done with damage control to this point, which has been putting those women first and putting herself second. So whether that's teasing a split or not, or it's something that 
plays into storyline, that's going to be interesting. But I did appreciate the storytelling of that. My biggest negative was that EO was basically beaten twice. She tapped out and then she got pinned. Like, come on, let Dakota take one of the falls in that case, especially the one at the end of the match. WWE has largely gone away from frequent title changes the last couple of years. So I don't necessarily hate that Damage Control's reign was only like 47 days. But at the same time, you have to give a little credit to WWE because unexpected title changes on TV are always a nice surprise. They do help with ratings, especially when they're competing with Monday Night Football. It does make sense to do something like this. Also, the match was really good wrestling wise. Like that should not get lost here. It was awesome. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. This was the best either team, Bliss and Asuka or uh, Kai and Sky have looked like as individual teams. Both seemed really natural here after a long time where it's been rough. So I do think there were a lot of positives to take away from this. But at the same time, did the title change actually make sense? I really don't know that it did. I did not like the change. I I have we've said since damage control started that they that they're not winning at the rate that you should take them seriously yet. They've actually lost the tag titles twice now because they lost them in the the, the tournament. Well, they lost they didn't them. Lose they, them. Won. they didn't lose. No, them. but they with with them on the line, they lost them. They've now lost twice with the tag titles on the on line. On the line, sure. Yes, and. To Alexa Bliss and Asuka, who I just have not cared about as a team for months. They're just there as Bianca's friends to help her fight a three-person team. Now they're the champs. We've still gotten we've still gotten almost no character development among any of these people. Uh very surprised at the decision. And it impacts uh it it, it I think it impacts our crown jewel pick, or at least it does mine. Um, and well, yeah, let, just, I don't like it. They keep losing. Well, let's, let's uh, discuss one more thing before we get to the prediction. We've been rightly critical of Triple H's booking of the women's division, but particularly the champions since he got the book, but I'm just not as down on damage control specifically as it seemed like others are like, could they be booked stronger? Absolutely. But I hardly think they're not credible or they're dead as a group or anything like that. Now, I do think there's a potential booking for this match at Crown Jewel that could leave them dead as a group. But I just feel like there's a lot of exaggeration because people saw EO Sky and Dakota Kai come back and they were really, really excited. And they thought, oh, it's a women's group. They're going to dominate the division and they are called damage control. So theoretically, they want to be in control. They should be dominating. But not every faction dominates. We saw it with Judgment Day, uh, other groups. There's low card groups that don't dominate. But but you all the time you see uh, groups form, the OC, that just don't win everything right away. And maybe this is a situation where they need to strengthen. They're still developing. Also, not every group works. And there's definitely some dynamic issues, I think, involved with them. But do I think they're dead in the water? Do I think it's the worst booking and it deserves some of the criticism I've seen online? I don't. I really don't think it's that bad. I wish it could be a lot better. But I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, this is awful. They're doing a terrible job because they're not. All these women are getting featured. They're getting long matches. It's way better than it used to be. And you have Asuka, who we all love as a champion right now. Others love Alexa Bliss. She's a champion too. I'm not saying that makes the booking okay, but it does make a lot of people happy. The pop at the end of this match 
was maybe the second or third biggest on the entire show. And that's only because Roman Reigns was there and Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar had a confrontation. If not for that, this may have been the biggest pop on the entire show. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I was surprised. You know, I, I understand the pop. I just, to me, damage control, I've said it before, has not, just hasn't clicked yet. And 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 them losing another title instead of the opportunity of them holding all the gold, uh, I, I think furthers that. Yeah. Just, eh. So just let's get to the prediction. For me. Uh, I literally have no idea who's going to win this match. They gave Belair a knee injury in her match at the start of Raw, only to mm-hmm. not reference it later. But she also took the huge bump to end Raw. So I guess they could sell her being beaten and bruised with a wrap around the knee and maybe her ribs kind of going into the match and use that as an excuse for her to lose the title. Let's not forget this is a last woman standing match as well. So it's another stipulation where she does not need to get pinned or be submitted. And she already did win the ladder match though. It seems like Bailey got in Cross's ear and it makes sense to have her with the heels and Candice LeRae with the faces like we just talked about for their war games match. The question is whether Cross interferes in this match and cost Belair the title as the numbers advantage. It would be surprising to see the tag team titles go to the faces the same week the women's title goes to the heel. But if Belair wins again, what case is there for having war games? Like, it wouldn't make any sense given that she beat them th- one on three. She's now beat Bailey twice, right? Uh, in the ladder match and in last woman standing. And her friends already have the championships. It would leave no reason for war games to happen whatsoever. I could see a winner's take all titles scenario amping up to increase the importance of that match. So with that being the case, I'm going to go ahead and pick Bailey to beat Bianca Belair and win the Raw Women's Championship. I just feel, Chris, like I'm setting myself up to fail with this prediction because everything we know to be true about booking in WWE goes against this pick. She had the go-home moment, Bailey did, so the opposite should happen. Plus, Belair never loses. So really, there's just no way that Bailey wins, but whatever, that's my prediction. I'm picking Bailey to win the Raw Women's Championship. But if Bailey loses here, then at that point, not now, but at that point, that's when damage control is done because they will just have lost every significant opportunity put in front of them. At that point, the damage done to them will be out of control. Out of control, yes. one, one could say. They added the stipulation sometime in the last week, right? It wasn't announced on TV, right? What? The last woman standing? Um, I don't Unless remember. I, missed I think it. it was announced on I, SmackDown. I think it was announced on SmackDown. Maybe. I, I might have missed it. I was, was like, oh, I totally missed I'm not that. Sure. It, hasn't played, it hasn't played into the story at all, which is, which is why it kind of surprised me. My, my pick is Bailey as well for all the reasons you just laid out. I don't think you're going to have Bianca Belair necessarily with taped ribs because I probably, I think they're going to be wearing giant t-shirts. Oh, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) In Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So, uh, but last woman standing match gives you the out to not pin Bianca, uh, even though she did get pinned at uh, Clash of the Castle, but the pick is Bailey as well. All right. Uh, One thing before um, we get to the two co-main events of this show I think people keep forgetting when they're discussing the women's division in WWE and the booking of the women to this point. And we've been critical of it on this show since Triple H took over. We're we're very surprised that it has not been better with the guy who really did help kickstart the women's revolution in NXT leading the charge. We thought the booking would be better. But I think something that people are forgetting, Chris, 
is three of the company's top five stars right now are all out of action simultaneously. Yes. Okay. And then when you look at the rest of the top 10, one just came back, one is still out, and the other is involved in a feud that only has men in it. It has six men and her. That's tough to book around when you simultaneously have to establish the other talent in the division and elevate them, and you're reintroducing a women's tag team championship. Again, the women's booking continues to not be great, but it has improved for me over the last like two or three weeks with Liv Morgan in particular and Nikki Cross going back to her old gimmick. But they are still missing Becky Lynch, Charlotte Flair, and Sasha Banks, who we expect is now going to come back, but we don't know for sure and we don't know when that's going to happen. That's three of the top five. Then you have Asuka, who just came back you know, after a couple of weeks of being out. Naomi is still gone. She's one of the most popular women in the company. And Rhea Ripley, who I just mentioned before, is working with the men. The top names they actually have been able to use recently have been Belair and Rousey. Those are the top five. And Bailey is right at the top of the top 10, you know, the second five. So again, they're missing like half of the top 10 women in this division right now. And I do think that is a significant reason why the booking is struggling. It's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. Agree. Nothing more to add. That's it. I do all that. I do all that and I get. Well, we're, we've, we've gone long and. and no, I appreciate it. Look at left, so. if, if I said it perfectly and all you have to say is agree, then that's a great scenario. That's how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brock Lesnar is going to fight Bobby Lashley on Raw. Lashley started a split screen face to face interview alone. Lesnar wasn't there. He said Lesnar has been ducking him for 20 years and he's ready to expose him as he did a couple of weeks ago. When he called Lesnar a Lashley wannabe, Lesnar actually made an entrance to the live crowd. Lesnar said he didn't come there to sit down and talk, but the fight. So Lashley entered. Lesnar met him on the ramp. They brawled with like 30 people, including Triple H, running down and separating them. Triple H started dressing down Lesnar. He just ran past him. And Triple H screamed, if you guys touch each other once once more before the match, the match is off and it won't happen. This was a really nice twist, Chris, I thought, on both the typical split-screen interview and the typical pull-apart brawl, because they combined both concepts into one, which I thought was interesting, and it made for a really intense moment near the ring when Lashley came out. Now, you could say, could this storyline be stronger? Yeah, sure, it could be. I'd have preferred a little bit more development, but it's not like Lesnar-Lashley really needs much build. They gave us the video package last week that explained everything dating back to the Royal Rumble. It is a fully told story. It's just that they haven't done much of that in the direct lead up to the match itself. But this is also the ultimate. Big meaty men slapping me. <laughs> it's the ultimate big meaty men match. That's what we're going to get. Don't get it twisted. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. And we're not wasting our time with water, or bread. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. Because there is going to be a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. So I'm just excited about this match. I'm thrilled that it's going to happen. It's going to be a certified banger. And yes, given Lashley did beat Lesnar at the Royal Rumble, even though Lashley's moreover, even though Lashley's the full-time Superstar and Lesnar is not, Lesnar will beat Lashley in this spot. And I do think potentially, if Lesnar ever does have a retirement match, it's possible Lashley could get his win back at that point. 
Yeah, I'm picking Brock just because I'll always pick Brock to win unless it's against Roman Reigns. He coming off doing a one-off match here, like that's for a giant payday. Those are the matches that Brock wins in this spot. I, you know, Bobby Lashley got the win at the Rumble, so this is Brock getting his win back. I'd love for it to go the other way. I think Bobby would be really boosted by it if he just straight up beat Brock clean. And I'm sure we're not seeing Brock for several months again after this. So wish we could do that, but I don't think we will. The pick is Brock. If Lashley beat Lesnar clean, he would have to beat Reigns for the championship. Like, because that's the only other thing you can do beyond yeah. that. Whereas Lesnar can beat Lashley and he doesn't have to go back to the championship because number one, Reigns already beat him and it's over. You know, you can trust. I think we can trust Triple H in that it's over compared to Vince McMahon. Um, and there's plenty of other things that Lesnar can go out and do, create feuds and storylines and all that type of stuff. But with Lashley, it actually, even though we'd love for the full-time performer to win, it would actually be tougher from a booking standpoint because what do you do then? You Nothing. Uns, you you split the titles. Well, yes, of course. That's <laughs> what <laughs> I'm talking about. Based in reality, though, in terms of what's yes, actually I know, happening, I know. you're really no, stuck. That, that's you're really a, stuck. It's a fair point. You would be stuck. It's a fair point. Yeah. Uh, so let's get to the main event. The undisputed WWE Universal Championship is on the line. Roman Reigns defending against Logan Paul on Raw. Reigns opened the 9 p.m. hour. I didn't even know he was going to be on Raw until late Monday when it was announced. Um, he opened the 9 p.m. hour with only Paul Heyman by his side and two sets of Usi chants from the crowd. He seemed to improv and comment that Sammy and Jay were out there working on getting the right-hand man more Usier. Reigns said he's been hyping opponents for two years, only for them to all get smashed, and he would not hype Logan because he's not dishonest, so he'd let Heyman do that, which is such a great backhanded compliment for Heyman. So uh, Heyman mentioned that Logan has steel screws in his hand, and he's been training with Shawn Michaels. He continued criticizing Logan as an outsider, when the Miz surprisingly interrupted, Miz put Logan over saying he knows Logan better in the ring than anyone else. He gave credence to him having a strong right hand, and he wanted Reigns' help with Dexter Loomis as an exchange to give Reigns all of Logan's weaknesses. Miz also deferred to Roman being the tribal chief. Reigns asked why people talk about Logan knocking him out when he took a step back, and then Superman punched Miz, knocking him out before ranting into the camera as he was walking up the ramp backstage, which was probably the best moment out of the entire thing. I just thought, Chris, this was really refreshing to see Reigns without the bloodline for once. And while Miz appearing was surprising, it actually made complete sense in the context of Logan's WWE run. On top of that, as I just said, Reigns was awesome on the mic in the ring and ranting to the camera as he walked back up the ramp to end the entire segment. This was a great segment and... It was a really solid way to sell this match and continue selling Logan as not really being a challenger, but hey, you never know. Yeah, I I, I liked it. It was nice seeing Roman one-on-one with somebody new in the ring. You know, we, we hadn't, like you said, he's always been with the bloodline or he's always been in front of Brock or Drew or whatever. Him in the Miz, like, oh, that was different. Kind of haven't seen that in a while. And then, you know, he's getting a little upset about everything. It worked. Tell me if it was just me, but were you surprised not to see Logan on either show this week, SmackDown or Raw? And like, I didn't read SmackDown spoilers, like I said, so I have no idea if he shows up on Friday's Go Home episode, but it's extremely odd to be paying this guy to main event what is a huge show for WWE and not have him on TV to promote it going down the home stretch when you just did matches with him at WrestleMania and SummerSlam and he was on TV constantly promoting those. So did you not think it was weird that he wasn't on TV this week? 
I did think it was weird. I also thought it would, Monday would have been a good opportunity for him to show up and gloat about Jake Paul's win and say, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, you, you double know, down. You. Yeah, so, um, yeah, no, I was surprising. The, the thing about Logan is, like, he doesn't really get face reactions when he comes out. He generally only gets face reactions after a match, and it's like, holy crap, he was a good wrestler. Like, we cheer for him. It's He's still kind of weirdly a face here where people don't really want to cheer for him, but they kind of have to, and and it's just kind of been a strange dynamic throughout this. It has. I, I do agree with that, where they're kind of cheering for Roman, even though he's a heel, and they're booing Jake or uh, Logan primarily, even though he's supposed to be a babyface in this spot. It's just an odd situation. Now, look, in terms of a prediction here, I mean, we've talked Roman. about it. Pre- Roman Reigns is going to win. That's the prediction. <laughs> we talked about it previously on the podcast. Um, you know, if Vince McMahon still had the book, I, I don't think Roman would ever lose to Logan Paul. But you could possibly see a scenario where purely for publicity reasons, they put the title on Logan. He has been impressive in the ring. It wouldn't be as embarrassing, theoretically, as like what happened in WCW with David Arquette. But you can't do it. I mean, there's no way that Roman Reigns' dominant run, I almost called it a dynamite run. I caught myself. His dominant multi-year run where he's beaten basically every single person in the entire company. There's no way you end that. In Saudi Arabia to Logan Paul, you just don't do it. So yes, Roman Reigns is going to win and retain the title. But Chris, let's do something a little bit different just for this match. Give me a predicted star rating, your star rating, not anyone else's. How? What, what is your expectation for the match quality bet- and storyline and whole deal between Roman Reigns and Logan Paul? I'm going to say four. And, and the, the, honestly, it's a bit low. We know Logan can work. Yeah. And we know Roman's Roman. I think there's a real possibility we get Logan doing some 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 fun stuff. And I, I think it'll be a perfectly good match. Logan will hit his punch and you'll think for a second, oh man, could Logan actually do it? And Reigns will kick hopefully out. Ro- 2.9. Hopefully yeah. Roman has that 2.999 kick out planned. Uh, to, Which to he is among back. the best in the world at, by the way. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Yes. Ro- you have, you have, yeah, Ro- so, you, you so have Roman Reigns, Kazuchika Okada, Tetsuya Naito, uh, Kota Ibushi. Kurt Angle. Kurt and Angle. Will Ospreay, Kurt Angle, um, although he's not active. But th- that's like your group. Yeah. Of the best 2.99 kickout artists, I would say. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I, I think four star, and I, I think it could certainly be higher. I do think this will be an enter- an entertaining match. Yeah, so my over-under, I would say, is 3.75 here, uh, primarily because I think it's going to be like Reigns dominating him for a vast majority of the match, mm-hmm. which is going to be boring. But then yes. he'll, he will have his run. His hope spot, Logan, where he like get, he does all his moves. He does his, the splash. He does the knockout punch. He gets the 2.99. And then Reigns, once he stands up, Superman punch spear, and it's over. So I do think it's going to be good. I think it's going to exceed expectations of people who have been shitting on it. But I don't necessarily think it's going to be some great match or anything like that. But I did think that was a worthwhile conversation for us to have uh, to kind of wrap up our pick and prediction on this match in particular, which, Chris, leaves us with our WWE crown jewel, blood money in the sand, uh, expectation grades. We're going to go ahead and discuss what our expectation is from this show from a 
letter grade standpoint. As always, when we do grading here, I let you go first, the Silver King will follow, and all of you listeners will have a chance to vote on your pre-show expectation grade at our Twitter account, at Getting Overcast. I should have said on our Twitter account, at Getting Overcast. Uh, When we post this poll one hour before Crown Jewel begins on Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern. Chris, we're starting with you, as I said. What is your pre-show expectation grade for WWE Crown Jewel? B+. I think high B plus too, like on that edge of an A minus because every single match, probably other than Drew versus Karen Cross, I'm interested in and I think will be good. I, we both predicted one title change that coming mm-hmm. on the women's title, but nothing from the bloodline. And I think the wrestling will be good. It's seven matches, not too long. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to watch it live because of couch football, but I, I think it'll be a B plus show. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I don't know or whether I'll be able to watch it live either. This is going to be a very uh, unique and interesting Saturday for me in particular, uh, with you as well, obviously, but me doing all the notes and having to prepare the show. It's going to be very, very difficult uh, to watch the show, but I'm right there with you as always. We're usually in lockstep with our pre-show expectation grade. I was ready to say like, you're kind of crazy to give it a B plus, but then I was scrolling through the card and I'm like, well, Reigns and Paul can really deliver and shock people. Uh, Lesnar and Lashley is going to be my match of the night. Like that's the thing I'm looking forward to the most Bailey and Belair with all those other women. It's going to be super interesting to see what they do. Usos and brawling brutes is going to potentially over deliver McIntyre and cross. I think inside a steel cage is a way better situation for them than the strap match. OC and judgment day has been super entertaining to this point and Strowman and Omos. I just have a weird feeling. It's going to feel kind of repetitive with what we're mm-hmm. getting from uh, Lesnar and Lashley. I don't know that both of these being on the same card makes a lot of sense. So that to me is my low point of the entire show. But I'm with you. I'm very um, optimistic going into this and I am going to uh, lean on a B plus pre-show expectation grade. It gives plenty of opportunity for it to fall below and also exceed it. I would be pretty surprised, Chris. What about you? If this gets into an A range though for the show. I think it I think you can get to an A minus. I don't. I do not see this becoming an A. Yeah, show. I'm totally. But I, I, I think I think Usos versus Brawling Brutes might be my match of the night. Actually, I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna have a good one. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think you can get up to an A minus. It's certainly possible. And whatever dog that is clearly agrees with you. They believe it's going to be match of the night as well. So that is our WWE. Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. We just broke down every single match on the card and gave you our thoughts, not only with predictions on who's going to win, but how storylines are going to develop going forward. So please allow me to take this opportunity and remind you what is coming up here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Thursday with our next show talking about everything going down in NXT and AEW. On Saturday, we will have at 11 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. Eastern a live Twitter Spaces pre-show for WWE Crown Jewel. And then at some point, Saturday afternoon or evening, we're not quite sure yet. We usually do our instant analysis podcast immediately after the shows go off the air. That is going to prove to be a lot more difficult this coming Saturday in particular. So this Saturday, at some point after Crown Jewel goes off the air, we will indeed have an instant analysis podcast episode for you. Do not miss that. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only so you can participate in the pre and post show polls, not only so you can join us 
for our live Twitter Spaces pre-show, but also so you know, as soon as the WWE Crown Jewel Instant Analysis drops, we post our new episodes first on Twitter. Again, at Getting Overcast. Thank you once again, Vintage Chris Manini, for joining us today to break down WWE Crown Jewel in our special Ultimate Preview episode. Thank you all for listening. Allow me to remind you on the way out that this podcast So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Please take a couple extra moments. Leave a written review as well. We will read them live here on the show. That is it for today. For Vintage, this is The Silver King, leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.